1: Hey, cult members, Jacob here. Just want to tell you about this new product and this new company that we have partnered with. Step into a new era of wellness with Rife Technologies. Utilizing the power of electromagnetic frequencies, these machines are crafted following the groundbreaking legacy of Dr. Royal Raymond Rife. Backed by the dedication and research of Matthew Rife, Dr. Rife's great nephew, Rife Technology offers genuine relief and harmony. Experience life enriched by legacy and innovation. And remember, with a 30-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked, you can explore with confidence. Go to realrifetechnology.com right now and shop around. You're gonna see their entire product line. If you listen to the Cult of Conspiracy, you heard the episode where we used one in shop with our girl, Christy. We can tell you firsthand, this is some incredible, incredible technology. It comes in a really nice case. It has a tablet that comes with it. It gives you a step-by-step instruction on how to fire it up, how to use it, and it's incredible. The benefits of it are substantial. It is, once again, backed by scientific research. So go to the website right now, and if you use the promo code, cult at checkout, you will get 10% off of your entire order. Shop now at realrifetechnology.com. That's realrifetechnology.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Cult of Conspiracy. And my name's Jonathan. I'm Jacob. And we are getting all the way back to all of the conspiratorial roots, baby. It's the Rothschild, right. or Rothschilds. The Rothschilds.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, cult members, we have discussed the financial 1%, the global elites, the wealthiest tippy-tippy top. And we always say follow the money. Right. If you follow the banking trail and you go up the ladder, it all is controlled by the same few people. And with that conversation, the Rothschilds gets brought up every time. Right. Of course it does. Why not? They are, in fact, the people we're discussing. But the cult of conspiracy has never actually done a very uh, in-depth dive into the family themselves. Who are they? Where do they come from? How did they get to be the position that they're in? And what are they currently doing? Because they've kind of fallen by the way of obscurity. Most people don't know who they are unless you, like, are in the conspiracy clique, right? Unless you're, like, digging into that type of information. Your average Joe Blow has no idea how Chase Bank has anything to do with Jacob Rothschild. You know what I mean? And mm. nobody would know how these connections have anything to do with anything. So it's time. It's time.
0: It's past due, um, you know, and, you know, this is like the original conspiracy stuff that, uh, you know, a lot of people started getting into, whether it be the Rothschilds or, or the Rockefellers or anything like that. And we'll eventually do uh, get to the Rockefellers as well. You know, we briefly have gone over um, John D. Uh, Rockefeller and uh, Jacob Rothschild here a little bit, but the but the roots are so deep. That you know, the, would you
1: believe me if I told you that we will be discussing those two gentlemen's connection this very episode, sir?
0: I would not be shocked. I would actually be upset oh. if we weren't.
1: I will say though, I am gonna have to take off the uh, the pit vipers because my notes are written by me and my penmanship is atrocious. I'm gonna be honest with you. Uh the first and second grade were hard times for me, and uh my handwriting is trash, so I cannot read it through uh, Through my own sunglasses, I have to actually have better vision. So for all the uh, Patreon and Rockfin cult members, you actually get to see damn near my whole face. And I am wearing a hoodie, not a flannel. Wow. I am in an undisclosed above ground location. I will say that I am surrounded by my weaponry for the boot hurt fights and things and stuff. I thought it'd be a nice little aesthetic. But uh, yeah, as you know, Jonathan is still out of the out of state and out of this time zone. Mm. Living his best life in old Arizona.
0: Yeah, dude. Uh, over here in Mountain time. Mountain time. Mountain Time. It's uh, it's pretty nice, you know, because it's 924 over here. It's 1024 over there, right?
1: It's a great question. I don't know. My phone's being used currently, okay. so I'm not going to turn probably the somewhere, <laughs> Probably
0: somewhere around there.
1: Oh, but, say, are um, you two or three hours or one or two hours behind us? One, I now, that,
0: I, one now that the time changed.
1: I'll be damn. Okay.
0: Yeah, but anyway, so we had the fall back and it fell back an hour closer to Arizona. time. it's lovely.
1: Yeah, and we do apologize for any uh, audio deficiencies you may be hearing this episode. We are doing our best and we are doing it via Zoom call from different time zones. We do hope that it comes through. Um, Not using our
0: traditional equipment.
1: Right. And uh, we do see the reviews where people are like, audio sounds better, da-da-da. We haven't had a audio review left in quite some time because finally our equipment is like on par with what it should be. Mm. But for episodes like this, we ask everybody to bear with us. Um, we're doing our best here.
0: Yes, yes. Um, and it should... I mean, dude, I've listened back. It sounds pretty damn good, if I don't say so well, that's, myself.
1: that's because you're a master of your craft, I have to say. As far as audio editing goes... A lot of this we've had to learn on the fly, bro. You have you have perfected the art, I must say.
0: Many of long hours trying to figure that shit out. Still not a perfectionist by any means, but definitely have a better understanding of what the hell's going on here. I mean, hey, dude, if I figure that I'm going to be doing this shit for the rest of my
1: life, may as well get pretty good at it, you know? I couldn't agree more. And you know who else had that same kind of mentality? The Rothschilds. Your boy, <laughs> your boy, Mayor Amschel Rothschild thought that, you know what, if we're going to do this... We better be the fucking best at it. Right. Mm. So let's go. Let's go into the overarching theme of it all. Then we're going to go into a little bit of the backstory. Here we go. Cult of conspiracy. Let's talk about the Rothschilds. Okay. Or Rothschilds. I've heard some people pronounce it like that. And there's a reason for that. Their name gets pronounced one way or another because they are set up in a lot of different countries very strategically. Let's go. This is the world's largest and most powerful family on earth. Period. The end indisputed okay they allegedly have funded both sides of every war since napoleon to today now a lot of people think they, they we hear that all the time and they think oh both sides since napoleon oh well napoleon no 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 no. understand napoleon himself was not funded by the rothschilds he funded his campaigns strictly off of a looting and pillaging um, rule that he had with his soldiers basically they were paid and fed off of the shit they took and stole That's why he had such an aggressive military strategy. So from the time of Napoleon onward, the Rothschilds allegedly have funded both sides of every world conflict that has happened. But who are they, right? Where are they from? How did they rise to rule the world? Why is there so much conspiracy surrounding them and their family tree? Let's dive in. So let's go back in time here real quick to Frankfurt, Germany in 1769. Okay, we're talking way back in the gap. This is around the time of the foundation of the Illuminati. Right? So actually it was before that, 1775 or 1776, I forget which one is when the Illuminati was founded. Um, this was only a few years before that in Germany. So uh, this is the same time and era of all of this.
0: The Bavarian one, right?
1: Yes, yes. So it was started as a b well, Bavaria is a uh area of Germany, right? So it's the same kind of the same way that the Skull and Bone Society is the offshoot of a German, Germanic death cult. Same way that the Illuminati was a Bavarian, i.e. German, uh, cult that was spun up to be the anti or the antithesis of the Freemasons. But anyway, that has nothing to do with the current story. Just wanted to give everybody kind of an idea of the area of the world that we're talking about and what's being done at the tippy top, right? Occult practices, the who's, who's, and the what's, what's and the clicks. Very, very upper echelon clicking up, right? Your boy, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, he lives in a ghetto for Jews, okay? Now, German law at this time prevented Jews from owning land or farming, as well as any craft work or dealing in weapons, silk, or fresh fruit, okay? This is in the 1700s. The Jews are being persecuted in Germany, okay? Specifically, Frankfurt had these kind of restrictions, and that was the capital city, but... That was kind of the idea of the Jews in multiple European countries around the world. They have always been persecuted, historically speaking. That's just like their thing. Okay. Okay.
0: The Jews, you're saying?
1: The Jews, yes. Hmm. So your boy, Mayor Amschel, he's living in a ghetto, as every other Jew in Frankfurt is. And it's a slum. And the only real work that he could find with all these restrictions is uh, in the textile industry. Basically, their day and age is equivalent of a sweatshop. Okay. Right, so it is not the best or safest work conditions, but it's the only work that the Jews are pretty much allowed to do. So that's kind of where he finds himself. But uh, he basically decides that dealing in gold coins and antiques was a more profitable business venture. Okay, so he starts kind of dealing in this. So he decides that dealing in gold coins and antiques is more of a uh, profitable, profitable business venture, right? A lot better than dealing in the sweatshops and making textiles and cloths and fabrics and whatever other little like menial labor type jobs. So he develops a system that we, uh, we refer to it today as front running uh, to maximize profits. Do you know what front running is?
0: I feel like I do, but I did just wake up from a nap. So my brain is a bit off right now.
1: Bernie Madoff. Ah, okay. So front running is basically, and again, this is going to be, whenever I give examples of how these financial games work, understand that I'm going to be giving a very quick boom, boom, boom. And yes, To anybody who is like financially educated, you're going to fry what I am going to say and explaining what front-running is, how these games were played later on when we talk about uh, their corporations. I get it. I am breaking this down in the layman's just because if I was to spend as much time as this required to go into every one of their shell companies and how things were laid out, trust me, we would be here well over five hours. Mm -hmm. Just in that one thing alone. So anyway, quick, quick breakdown of it all. Basically, front running is using borrowed money to make a deal happen and just kind of using robbing Peter to pay Paul and doing that over and over and over again to turn a profit. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Yep. Okay. Which is basically our banking system as it is anyway.
1: Well, there's a reason for that. this This is where this stems from. So... He, desi- he pretty much on his own develops this system that we now call front-running. He works, he gets so good at this and attains such a good wealth about him that he works as a court agent, similar as today's stockbrokers. But I want to uh, give a little, a little more talk about that one now. He worked for Prince William the ninth of Hess Castle, which is uh, the German royal family. But when I say he was a court agent... Let me explain what I mean by that. The actual word was hafaktor, which is another word for court Jew. Okay. Uh, other examples of court Jews were Aaron of Lincoln and Vivilin of Strasbourg. Basically, these were Jewish people, specifically court Jews that even got their own name and title behind them. That was the financial dude for the king's. Literally their own title of court Jew was given to them. So say what you want, even though they couldn't do all these jobs and they were persecuted. Even the Royals knew to keep a couple of these specific types of people in his inner circle. Call that what you will.
0: Oh, yeah. Shysty.
1: Shysters. Well, it's just like remember how we talked about this. I think it was on the live. The Jewish people, just by their culture, are extremely meticulous with note-taking, with fact-checking, with numbers, and making sure that their stuff adds up correctly. That is an inherent thing in their culture, religiously, and I would even argue racially, right? So, there are certain things that just go well with them, and dealing with money, historically, has been something that Jews have excelled at. Very similar to how people from Southeast Asian countries do very well with math. We do not know why numbers just work in the heads of the people from this area of the world. It's just a thing that, historically speaking, has been a thing. Right? Oh, yeah. Call that what you will. So anyway, he is the court Jew, court agent, of Prince William IX of Hess Castle, which is the German royal family. Now, long story short, when the prince needed to buy gold, he turned to your boy Mayor. Okay, now, mayor would buy gold with borrowed money. And when I say, like, when he needed gold, it would be for any kind of military campaign, a banquet, doesn't matter. When the king needed tangible gold in order to do things, he would turn to Mayor Rothschild and say, hey, I need dot, 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 make this happen for me, all right? He would turn around. (laughs) Mayor did some sheisty things here. This is when he absolutely was robbing Pierre to pay Paul. He started front running with the king's money to buy gold, make a commission off of it, and then sell it to the king as his job and get paid for it. So he found a way to double down on the king's gold.
0: If that's not taxing the, the tax dollars that you've made,
1: <laughs> I mean, we call this you see where
0: it comes from. Yeah, right. Uh, we we call okay.
1: this a service charge, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right, right. He wasn't running this gold from A to B for his health. Your boy Rothschild was, was trying to make a little make a little slice of that pie. So he found a way to get two slices for the price of one. You feel me? Mm. Well, you so know, again,
0: you gotta shist when you can shist.
1: Things like this. Like, I'm not trying to like you know advocate for these people. However, I gotta give props where they're due. Homeboy had some stones on him to be doing this with the king's money. Your boy was able to make things happen. Now, who's to say how he was able to make these things happen? Was it just that he was some sort of a a king of the the underground circuit, a uh, Thomas Shelby from Peaky Blinders, if you will, just a guy that got things done and got in with the right crowd? Very possibly. Or is it that he basically made his own luck, right? He set himself up as the, he didn't even need to be a middleman in this transaction, but he set himself up to be the middleman in this transaction and just did that on repeat, right? Mm. So your boy just stacked and stacked and stacked and stacked. So, once Mayor stacked enough cash, he opens a bank, okay? And in the year 1800, he is, by far, hands down, the richest man in Frankfurt. But, he has ambition. He doesn't want to be the richest man in his town. He doesn't even want to be richer than his one royal vassal. He has goals, bro. So, Let's see what he does next, bro. He sends four of his five sons to set up banks in the major financial hubs in Europe at this time, okay? These five hubs are Vienna, Naples, Paris, of course, Frankfurt, where he's at, and the crown jewel, London. Okay, now London is a very strategic move, especially at this time. Pull up the picture, if you will, sir, of the uh, British Empire. It's uh, the world map on a flat, and I might play, I might, I might, let you know, but, but uh, all of the red is the British-owned territory in the year 1800. There we go.
0: All right. Yeah, and, go ahead and zoom in on that. And if you want to be able to see this map, come check us out over at rockfin.com slash cult of conspiracy or patreon.com slash cult of conspiracy podcast. Those links are down in the show notes. You'll be able to see all the videos, all the before and after shows, and the live once a month show. Not to mention, you're getting these shows earlier than the people of podcast world, so... You're, uh, you know, you're just you're you're getting your third eye blasted open before anybody. So definitely come check it out. You'll be able to see all the articles, all the videos, our beautiful faces and our beautiful guest faces as well. It's always a good time over here in Rockfin and Patreon world.
1: Indeed, indeed. So as I was saying, if you look at this map now, you realize that the sun never set on the British Empire. Okay, literally, they controlled something in every time zone, it seems. Okay, uh-huh. so London setting up a massive bank in the financial hub of that empire, this was critical moves, right? This was the steps that need to be taken. So here's how we did it, bro. London being the very strategic place it was. The British Empire had, w- had just lost one of its uh, major colonies, right? Maybe you've heard of it, a little US of 80 days. But, um, but the East India Trading Company was also in full swing. Okay, so they had multiple big picture international things happening around the world. Mayor gives his third son twenty thousand pounds to invest. Okay, I also want to mention that pounds up until uh, well, I'll mention when this change happens, but during this time frame, British pounds were the universal standard currency, like the U.S. dollar is today. Okay, so any big exchanges made was done in pounds regardless of what country to what country. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I right. hear <laughs> there was somebody who was trying to say that, like, dude, I, I, pound is a weight. It's not a currency. We're talking about dollars here, okay? Stop talking about these pounds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's oh, pretty crazy. They are
1: talking about pounds of sterling silver, by the way. That's uh, If I'm not mistaken, I think that's where that comes from.
0: Oh, that that doesn't surprise me. So one pound oh, of sterling silver. Okay, so it's not like super, you know, fancy metal. I could
1: be wrong, but I think that's also why it's like uh, silver sterling is another way of writing on their international currency for like exchange trades. I could be wrong. I could be wrong.
0: Anyway. Shout out to the 925.
1: So, shout out to the 225 while you're at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. So... He sends his son 20,000 pounds to invest. He sends his third son, Nathan. Okay, now Nathan sets about growing it by any means necessary. England at this time was going through the beginning of their industrial revolution. All right, there were now textile factories where there were never any, like, before, okay, what was farmland that the quote-unquote peasantry of old used to work in and, and farm, was now industrial textile mills okay uh this is around the same well not around the same time but if you ever look at the uh yorkshire if you look at um uh, me out here
0: where are you so, trying, trying to get at the
1: areas of england that have like major industrial hubs a uh, small heath uh oh,
0: i'm i'm shit. terrible at maps dude like i am not a mapster
1: Basically, long story short, England was going through a massive industrial push, okay? A lot of factories, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of jobs rather than farmland, right? So with that, there were now these textile factories, and Nathan found a way to triple the profits by controlling the materials, the dyeing, and the manufacturing themselves, Okay, so if he can control where the materials are coming into the factories from, the dyes that are used in the factories, and then was controlling the workers and the factories themselves, that is a one, two, three punch attack, making him the cheapest products on the market, therefore killing everything else. So from that, he was able to control the supply and demand of it, control everything about it, and uh, he set the prices. He also set up operations smuggling goods and precious metals. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting, dude. By 1808, Nathan had earned a reputation as being a man who could, quote unquote, get things. Okay. To the continent from all over the world. Because the sun never set on the British Empire, as you could have seen from that map. Now, after only a few years in operation, Nathan reported an annual sales of over 800,000 pounds. Okay, so he took a $20,000 loan from his father and in a few years turned it into a residual income of $800,000. That's big cheese. Okay, these are boss moves your boy Nathan is making and he's coming out there for blood. Now, with this wealth, he founded his bank in London. All right, September 19th of 1812, Mayor Rothschild dies. Okay, but before he dies, he calls a family meeting. Okay, this is this is. Where the rules of the Rothschild family are laid in stone, okay? On his deathbed, his sons all surrounding him, he pretty much tells them what is going to be the family motto moving forward. How we're going to do things and how the money will stay within the family. But this is also where some of their rules kind of got laid in stone, which is where the inbreeding comes in. So... He makes it clear to his families that family or excuse me, he makes it clear to his sons that family unity must be the foundation on which this business stands. They must stand together as one unit or be dissolved over time. And it was also decided that marriage would only be done within the family. Okay, second cousins is the furthest apart that they are allowed to marry.
0: That's the farthest
1: that you're allowed to marry. That is the absolute furthest. You're not allowed to marry like within your household. Like brothers and sisters can't get married, but you also cannot go further than second cousins. Wow.
0: Okay. Well, it's a that it's, is it's pretty amazing that they did they all turn out turn out normal, bro.
1: Well, statistically, I think they got like a one in eight shot of one of their kids being fucked up, but they also have enough money to where that's not exactly a problem for them.
0: Hmm. Eh. A little fetus uh abortion there if something's wrong anyway. uh,
1: or like that one family secret that they keep locked up in chains in the basement like uh, Slaw from the Goonies uh hey you guys i mean there's actually a lot of uh, historical precedents of royal families doing that the inbreeding was so bad within the royals that like you could look at some of the artist renditions that are like true to form of these uh royal kings that had some ridiculous uh, features, very indicative of inbreeding and Down syndrome and a lot of extra chromosomes with that one. But, uh, you know, uh, that's just because... Like
0: your boy Tyrion Lannister, bro.
1: Tyrion Lannister would be an example of it, sure. Uh Well, the the Lannister line all having white hair. That would be like a, a genetic deformation from that, sure. But anyway, so from that, he basically lays out that we are going to stick together through thick and thin. We are never going to show off our wealth if we can help it. Okay? We are going to try to stay so far under the radar. No one knows who we are. We're going to marry, intermarry into, into the family to where, for whatever land you may begin, the laws for uh, hereditary and the laws for passing down after death. Uh, what's this called?
0: Um, What? Just handing down?
1: Uh, inheritance. Excuse me. Ah, Okay. Inheritance laws and and things like that for large sums of cash. There was no way that it would ever go outside of the family.
0: That was Ah. the entire point. I mean, I get the concept, you know, but that's absolute greed in the entire way. Like if you are wanting to be the
1: greediest,
0: most rich fucking person and people like to the absolute Then you say, no, there is never going to be another family that is ever going to steal our wealth. And we believe in that so much so that, you know, uh, all the Roth, uh, all the Rothschilds moving forward. You're only going to be banging your cousins. All right. So get used to it, buddy.
1: Yo, your boy said that I grew up in the ghetto and I ain't going back. (laughs) Basically, your boy Mayor said we came up from the mud. And we have developed a taste for caviar, and I don't want my great-grandkids tasting the mud. So yeah. here's how we're going to do it. And so the family decided this is the way we're going to do it, and they have held true to that form up until the current day, sir.
0: You know what I wanted to ask you? I feel like maybe you would know this a little bit better than I would. Um, What's up? So they say that the the type of Jews that they are is Ashkenazi. What What is Ashkenazi?
1: So you have Ashkenazi Jews and you have Hasidic Jews okay and now these are the two or I'm sorry uh Spartic Spartic Jews are the other type they say that there's these two but that's like saying that there is Protestant and Catholic Christians There's, like, a lot of other levels to be said rather than just those two, right? Yeah, according
0: to the Catholics, that's the only two.
1: (laughs) Right, 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 right. And according to the certain Jews, there's only these types of Jews. But then if you ask them specifically, that goes into tribe and it goes into all this other stuff. Long story short, the Sephardic Jews, whenever the uh, Jews are kicked out of their land, the Sephardic Jews went into the Arabic countries and assimilated into their cultures they hold true to their Jewish ways, although they have a different way of doing certain things. Their language is the same, their religion is the same, but culturally and some of their foods and like some of their it's just different stuff. Um, the uh Hasidic Jews and the uh, they all went to Europe. So that's the Nazi Jews, they went to Europe. And those are the ones that Hitler was after. Hitler did not want the Spartan Jews like he had no issue. Well, he he wanted them. But the Muslim countries hid the Sephardic Jews. Like, they were cool with the Sephardics. They have no issue with them. It's the fucking Ashkenazi Jews that the Muslims are after. And that the Hitler was after and all this shit.
0: It makes you really wonder why, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, if there really is not that big a difference, what would be the core reason that you'd be gunning after them specifically?
1: You know, that in and of itself could get its own episode, brother. I'm going to be very honest with you. I would actually like for us to get a rabbi on the show. To, like, explain in depth, true to form, like, what the rules and why things are and like, these people. Because at this point, I'm talking secondhand, right? Mm. I want to hear somebody from the religion, from the tribe, if you will, talk about their cousins from the other side of the sandbox that they, like, really don't fuck with. I don't know what there is, but there's, like, infighting in the Jewish community between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi. They, like, don't fuck with each other. It's weird. I mean, it... it
0: it probably doesn't have anything to do with the religious beliefs, though, right?
1: I think it. I think it's, it's similar to like people. Catholic and Protestant. I think it's similar to that kind of bullshit. Like we're still worshiping Jesus, reading the same fucking book here, y'all. But we're like fighting for a, 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 how long in Ireland and killing people all over during crusades and shit. Like I, I think it's realistically like a one for one comparison, but I may be wrong. We should do a deep dive on that. We should, we should. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. So anyway, your boy, uh, Mayor Rochelle dies, okay? Now, the 1800s were extremely profitable for the entire family, okay? The entire century had massive wars across Europe. Now, England waged six different wars during this time and never faced economic collapse. Okay, now, I thought understand what I just said out loud brother wars cost money and I need, I could need to drive that point home to all the cult members listening right now, war costs money, Mm -hmm. big money. And I'm not just talking manpower and horses and food and weapons and, and logistics and no, 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 no. Specifically it costs gold. It costs actual tangible money just to buy and procure every single bit of every single bit of a military campaign. Are you with me?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's been long said that they've been funding both sides of the war since,
1: like, what is it, from France, right? From Napoleon, right? So that's when this really took off. So this was right after or around the time of Napoleon. That's why I'm saying there's, like, an inner inner connection between the Napoleon, but we're going to get there in two seconds here. England waged six different wars and never actually went bankrupt. During the 1800s, that is an absurd sentence in and of itself. But how were they able to do that? Specifically the Rothschilds. Hmm. Okay, so let's go. Now let's talk to Napoleon because this is where that kind of crossover happens. Now Napoleon funded his exploits by looting his captured lands. Okay, the Italian campaign literally funded itself, uh, especially when they raided the Vatican. Okay, when Napoleon's troops raided the Vatican and took all the gold, went to the archives and did all that, that's what funded the entire Italian campaign. The French citizen didn't get a tax put on them for Napoleon to go do this shit. Okay, he just was ruthless. He just said, "Fuck it all, we're burning it and it's ours now." So anyway, hood rat shit, selling so, hood rat shit. He was doing hood rat shit with his friends, you know, <laughs> as as you're one to do when you're an emperor, I guess. <laughs> So, he sold the Louisiana Purchase. Okay, now that was a good move. That was another way that he funded his exploits. But uh, Napoleon mandated that at least one-third of the French money was backed by gold. Okay? Now, he paid 200 francs for one kilo of gold. Or, oh, excuse me. Uh, 200 francs for one kilo of silver and 3,100 francs for one kilo of gold. That was like the exchange rates at this time. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what the franc to British pound exchange was, but my point is, though, that, like, he was buying it. And he mandated that French currency needed to at least be one third gold or silver backed. Like, we can play with the paper. We can play with the, the beliefs and the borrows and the credits. We need to have at least one third of our shit backed by tangible shit.
0: So damn. So gold was ten times more expensive than silver, or at least ten times more expensive than silver was back then.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. Now silver and gold have kind of gone back and forth as far as what is and is not more expensive. At one point in time, uh, when the uh, I would say it probably was about a hundred years or two hundred years before this, uh, silver was actually worth more than gold, and that was there was a reason for that. There was like a, a shortage and like the prices jacked up. But at that critical moment in time, when silver was, in fact, worth more, officers' uniforms were being decided and ranks were being decided. If you look at the United States military, our rank structure, if you look at a gold oak leaf, it is actually of a lower rank than the silver oak leaf. Okay, and that is because when this was being decided as what rank would mean what, silver is actually worth more.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay.
1: it was just all one about, of those weird economic spikes when they were like, this is this, and this is the way it is, write it down, and it was like, boom, now it's tradition. It was like, just because of a blip, you know what I mean? Yeah, all about the supply and demand of that shit. Exactly, exactly. So, we're going to get into how the Rothschilds played big into that here in a minute. So, anyway, um, the French also allied with what would be, or excuse me, the Rothschilds allied with what would become the Kingdom of Italy- after Napoleon raided through and raided the Vatican and all of this. So the Rothschilds actually became friends with the Vatican through this. Um, But eventually he ran out of steam and money. And after his first exile, no war reparations were asked to be paid by France. This was crazy because this is the other side of the whole war-costing money gambit. After a defeat, okay, a country has to pay war reparations to whoever they pissed off, whether that be in uh, buildings or construction or actual gold or actual uh, water or whatever the case may be, whatever the stipulations are, reparations had to be paid at the end of a war. When Napoleon's exploits were done after he was exiled the first time, they did not actually demand any reparations. This was crazy. They literally let him get off scot-free if he just would have stayed the fuck away. And uh, he came back, and he fucked around and found out again, and he got his ass stomped at Waterloo. Um, and this was the uh he had to pay a 700 million franc reparation okay this is the largest war reparation debt as it relates to GDP ever paid in human history explain
0: to me this whole reparation shit so what you go into you go into some country you beat their ass in a war and then you have to pay reparations to help build their shit back up
1: No, no. If you lose your war that you went and fucked around and found out, you have to pay the country back for all the shit you broke.
0: Pay which country back? The one that you're fighting for or the one you're fighting against?
1: No, no, no. All right. So France went in and fucked up Italy. After the war, they had to pay Italy for all the shit they broke. What? France lost. They got their asses kicked. So Italy's like, all right, bitch, now that you're in position you're going to pay us or we're going to attack you. You know, now that your army's defeated, this is what we call a shakedown.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, we've dwindled you down, um, and now you have no choice but to just give us your cheese or else we're going to wipe you out the rest of the way.
1: And it really depends on who started it and who was the aggressor and who did what on whose land and whose side of the map and all these things. There's a lot of things that play into it, and that's why these big meetings like the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Verdun, These big talks are had, and they decide who gets what, who pays what, and they all sign on the dotted line at the end of it, agreeing that this is the way it's going to be, right? So Napoleon's first big push and his getting his dick slapped down, he didn't have to pay for that shit. They actually let him walk, and then he came back and fucked around again. And he got his ass stomped at Waterloo, and then he had to pay 700 million francs, okay? And again, the largest, as it relates to GDP, the largest war reparations ever paid in human history, okay? This was paid with the help of Jacob Rothschild, okay? Now, he arrived in Paris in 1812 and founded the Rothschild Banking Family of France. The bank itself was formally set up in 1817 after having his name changed from Jacob to the French James because James is actually the French version of Jacob, oddly enough.
0: You know what's really weird? I could just never understand like, what's that? How is your name not your name everywhere you go? You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine you go somewhere and you go over to fucking French or, or France or whatever, and they're like, oh, James, how are you, sir? Or, you know, Jean m'appelle James or whatever the fuck. And you're like, no, Jean m'appelle Jacob, bitch. And they're like, no, 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 uh, no it's different over here. You're like, what? That's what my mom naming me. It didn't name, didn't name me James. It's actually, weird. it's
1: easier in French if I just go by Jean and be honest with you.
0: How do you say Jacob in Francais?
1: It's easier to just go by Jean.
0: Okay, I'll take your word for it.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm just, I've, I've, whenever I went to France and whenever I did French class, we talked about it and yeah, James was, a was talked about cause it's that soft, J. it's not a je, right? Cause not J Mapelle Jacob is Je James. And it was like, hmm, James is weird. Let's go with Jean. And I was like, yeah. That works. But anyway, it's a thing. So he changed his name to James because that's how that goes in that country, as you do. But Rothschild stayed the same. Okay? Uh, With that being said, the British soldiers fighting against Napoleon in 1814, okay, were under the Duke of Wellington and they were directly connected to the Rothschilds in England. Before he entered France, he understands that he will need a large amount of French coins, okay, to buy supplies and to pay for his troops once he gets to France, right? He can't come in there with British pounds and buy shit in France. It's not going to happen. And there's no places that do big currency exchange at this time. So basically, he's not saying he wants to exchange from X to Y, He's saying he needs a lot of French money right now. Okay. You feel me? Yeah. And keep in mind, our boy Nathan, old, old running old London bank over there, is a known smuggler. He's known as a guy that can get things just because that's what he be doing, right?
0: I imagine it was probably a bit easier back in the day to do that kind of shit. You know, there was no security cameras. There was no internet. You, What'd you have to do? Just like out outsmart some big meatheads standing at the doors or whatever?
1: See, I think it was more about like, because you had to understand you weren't just going with soldiers looking for you. you also had the East India Trading Company, you had the Dutch India Trading Company, you had a bunch of other seafaring nations, not to mention pirates. So when it comes to smuggling operations, it was treacherous, it, you had to know what you were doing. But if you had the right guys who knew the waters, or you could, you know, buy the right guys, you know, money talks. At the end of the day, money will make things happen if you throw enough of it at the problem. It really is like a superpower. Bullshit walks, you know. It does, in fact. So with that, okay, uh, before he enters France, he understands he needs a lot of French coins. The British Empire was strapped for cash at this time. Okay, so Nathan Rothschild in London seized on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, go ahead and go to the picture that I have. Uh, it's a digital picture. It's actually a direct quote from Nathan Rothschild's journal uh, talking about his deal, like this deal that pretty much made him what he was.
0: Okay. Uh, this one right here. That's the one. Can you read that, sir? All right. It's a bit dark. Um, let's see if I can zoom. Let me see. It says, when I was settled in London, the East Indian, uh, East India tr- uh, company had 800,000 euro worth of gold to sell when I went to, to sell when I, when I went to sale.
1: When he went to sale. Yeah. Like okay. when he went to market. Got you.
0: Um, and it says, and bought it all. Um, I knew, that's really hard to read. I knew Dolce. Oh, Duke. Oh, <laughs> Dulce. Duke I, I knew the Duke of Wellington must uh, must have it. I had bought a great many of his bills at a discount. The government sent for me and said they must have it. Uh, when they got it, they did not know how to get it to Portugal. I undertook uh, all that, and I sent it to France, and that was the uh, the best business I ever did. Okay.
1: So understand that he took on all the risk. He took on all of the, like, it was his money. It was his skin in the game. But he understood that if he didn't seize on this opportunity, this would not come again. So, basically, long story short, through a little bit of some one hand over here, one hand over here, a little swappity-doo, making some money exchange happen, your boy became the clutch player for the British Empire, and they did not forget this. And neither did he when he came to collect interest on that big, big purchase. Hey, that's boss moves right there, dude. Dude, I'm telling you, like, I, yes, these people are like these shitheads that are running the world and all, but you understand, you got to give props to the hustle, dude. Say yeah, what that's, you
0: want. that's how you stay out in front, dude, is what you you just, you know, you don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You just got to be the smartest person in the room. Yes. And, and
1: you just got to make sure you're in the correct room at the right time, seizing the opportunity, man.
0: Right. Well, and also, if you're the one kind of influencing these banking laws, then ultimately you can kind of, you know, work it to whatever advantage that works best for you. So if you're somebody that is constantly, you know, just always making cheese off of, you know, um, uh, bank loans or, you know, uh, whatever they do, I mean, certain percentages, certain taxes, whatever, then it's completely ge- uh, geared in a sense to where they always got that money coming in. And this is kind of showing really how it was all set up in the first place. Uh, you know, this was the the real monopoly of money in general. Whenever at first, you know, people really started getting super greedy as far as far as money. Goes. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely, man. So basically, he successfully pulled this off and then. He and his brothers did this, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, dude. And they set up the global financial elite, dude. They were them. That is it. They were at the top of the game. They were propping up entire military endeavors for entire governments and empires and countries. And they were making interest off these loans. And because these countries were going to pay them back, because all the country had to do was just tax their citizens a little more, which they will do every time and the Rothschilds are making their money with the commission, with the interest and with every penny and dollar along the way being their dollar based off of their gold that they procured from market. Do you think
0: the IRS is a, you think the
1: IRS is a Rothschild thing? We'll get there in a moment, sir. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to make our little way to America. Don't you worry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually, yeah, dude, it's, Oh, I'm telling you, it is really wild. This rabbit hole, it was it was fascinating to go down. Because you know how big I am with history. And we're talking about war, which is something that I, I love, historical war history, all of the things that go into it. Looking at where the Rothschilds had their fingers in and, like, what plugs they did at the right time, dude, it is is—it is the epitome of boss moves. I mean, so it's, anyway.
0: it's literally the original gangsters, bro.
1: Yes, Yes, it is. So let's talk about that, right? So to have a war, you need to have money. We talked about that. You lose a war, you have to pay those reparations, and you need more money. So not only did you borrow money from the Rothschilds to start your military campaign, if your ass lost, you need to borrow more money from the Rothschilds to pay the reparations for the shit you broke. Okay, so then don't forget about the interest on those big loans along the way. They were charging 8% just on the currency exchange just to make any of these things happen. You don't even want to know what they were charging as far as the actual principal on the loan, but it was enough to make them so much so that the Royals had to ask them permission to start going to war. You feel me?
0: How long has this whole reparation rule kind of been in effect? Has this always been a thing or was this implement implemented around this time?
1: Pretty much since the beginning, bro. I mean, you think about this, even put this to the basic of human scales. If I, in my cave with my, with my people decide that I want to come over and fuck your cave up and steal your food. I do that and I succeed. Well then boom, I got your food and that's my food now. And you can't do shit about it. Cause I fucked you up. But let's say I go into your cave and try to take your food and you fuck me up, but you don't kill me. You let me go back. But now you're going to come knocking on my door and I need to start giving you meat once a week until you feel okay about this. Uh, checkmate then. It's basically big boy checkmate and if you want to fight me about it understand you just already fucking lost that fight so all you you're got
0: paying. all you got left is your king and a couple of pawns bitch
1: that that's <laughs> it so you're going to pay through the nose until I decide otherwise now throughout the course of human history this was done through levies and taxes uh, tributes, if you will. When a military would take over a country, they would have to pay tributes so that they wouldn't get ransacked again by the Huns, by the, you name it. This has been done throughout forever. Now, with a more civilized day and age, we started doing, instead of tribute, we would start doing war reparations until the amount agreed upon was met. And then everybody goes on their merry way. We learned our lesson. We got our dick slapped about it. And we're moving on, right? I'm trying to move on in a more civilized manner. I
0: can't hear Tribute without thinking of Tenacious D. This is not the greatest song in the world. No, this is just this a is tribute. This is just a tribute.
1: I love that song. I wish you oh, it's were classic. there. Just a matter of opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. God love you. Oh, dude, no. Tenacious D, uh, I love it.
0: God, I could listen to that fucking soundtrack all day, every day. It just never that's gets old. What,
1: that's what we need to do: is a mushroom trip and watch Tenacious D, mm. and try to pick out all the occult symbolism, which is there for a reason. Like that, Jack Black has like been very clear that was like it's the whole point.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that whole movie was basically like you know, uh, devil worship, but in the rock and roll sense.
1: That was the point. You know, Jack Black is definitely not a part of the cult. I'm I'm going to say that much. Jack Black is a wholesome good dude.
0: I love me some Jack Black, but there has been some some strange things. I don't think that he's, you know, an evil guy per se. I'm not I'm I, I right. don't believe that he was on any Epstein flight logs or anything like that. I would be that is one
1: guy I would be absolutely heartbroken uh, from if he was. I'm going to be honest, I think that he's not about all that dumb shit. That's why he is who he is in Hollywood. Because he has been himself, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, probably. But he did say which, uh, a strange quote. Um, so whenever they made that first Jumanji movie with him and The Rock and all them, um, they uh, he goes, look, if we don't end up making a second one, they will clone us. And, and they're, they're going to get that second Jumanji movie, whether we like it or not. And I was like, okay, that, that could be seen as
1: a joke, but it's almost like, you know, is it though? You know, I see that. If anything, that's a good thing. Jack Black is on the side of us, letting us know, "Yo, they'll clone my ass." Like, yo, y'all better, y'all better wake up. But anyway, uh,
0: Shallow Hal wants a gal.
1: I love Shallow Hal. That was also <laughs> a classic. Yeah, dude. Anyway, Anyhow. Gwyneth Paltrow with four hundred extra pounds on her. That was funny. Uh, I don't yeah. care who you are. That shit's hilarious, dude. Yeah, dude. Rosie. A
0: whole <laughs> lot of Rosie. <laughs>
1: Uh, All right, so anyway, let's get back into it here. Uh, The revenues and commissions and interests are all great and all, but they had bigger fish to fry, man. They understood that the world of finance and business, information is everything, and speed is king, right? So they got to know what's happening in the the market the moment it happens. They got to control the market. Same way the stock traders and all that happens, the communication and the information and the knowledge is, is paramount you got to be ahead of the curve at all times, right? Mm-hmm. So for that purpose, they got ahead of the curve. They needed a larger and better network, okay? So they were one of the earliest and most successful foreign currency traders, and with that, their reach spanned as far as it did. They were always making the best exchanges at the best times. They u- they did it using private horse messages and trained pigeons. So basically, they were always in the know of what was going on around the entire continent at all times,
0: savages bro that was it i mean once you
1: got that you already know what moves to make before anyone else does you're ahead of the curve man
0: yeah they they, uh they dotted the eyes in every possible way so
1: so then their currency currency speculations became the family's most profitable endeavor all right, so basically they knew what country was about to go downhill. One country was about to have a massive uptick. They knew what things needed to be moved from X place to Y place, and then boom, boom, making their commissions, making those percentages across the way. That was it. They were in the know, and they made the right moves at the right times. Uh, Nathan, I'm sorry, Nathan Rothschild became the wealthiest man in the world. July 28, 1836, Nathan Rothschild dies at 58 years old. Now, this was a massively controversial death because the Rothschilds are actually known for longevity. Like, at the time, his mother was still alive. His grandmother had just died. Um, Like, it was—for him to die at 58 was crazy.
0: I mean, hey, dude, you interbreed too much. I mean, some shit's bound to
1: happen. But that was the thing. He was the the patriarch of the family at this time. He was the one running shit after his dad, Mayer, had died. But for whatever reason— he died, and it was kind of a, a freak way to go. But neither him nor there. How exactly was it again? It was like a heart attack. Oh, okay. It was a, it was a very, it was like, it wasn't like a crazy, like, uh, conspiratorial way. It was just like, wait, what? Like your whole family, none of you died from heart attacks. None of you died from Alzheimer's. None of you died from that. Like, what are you talking about? Fifty-eight, dude. You had at least forty more in you, dog.
0: I mean, you gotta, you gotta work five more years just to get social security, bro.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So like I said, it was a controversial death. There are some conspiracy theories abounding about his death. But at the same time, we're speculating something from 1836. And it's about the Rothschild. So again, consider the source. Where did the information actually come from? Dot, dot, dot. You get it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and um correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't uh the the Rothschilds that's part of the 13 original bloodlines that they talk
1: about? No, because keep in mind your boy Mayor Rothschild was in a ghetto. He was in he wasn't like a part of some ancient royal family that got a massive plug-in. He started from a ghetto, started dealing in antiques and coins.
0: You know what's weird though, dude, is that you know they always talk about um the the family that that came before the ultimate like highest up people so, and and it's always like really odd and strange so. For example, you yeah, know, we, we've talked about Elon Musk and how he, he has these stories about how his family was poor. Meanwhile, his dad owned a fucking emerald mining company. So there's one. Then you got then you got Bill Gates who's like, Oh yeah, I started Microsoft in my garage with just using a couple of computer, you know, parts and, and putting it all together. And it's like, uh, actually, no, Bill Gates Sr. was a fucking multimillionaire, if not a billionaire. Um, and it the list goes on and on. So I always question the the parental like history as far as all this shit. Goes, and the reason why I bring that up is because I've heard it before uh, said that the the Rothschilds wasn't always their last name. That maybe they changed their last name. They changed uh, uh, they changed their last name from you know uh, time to time. Maybe every couple of centuries, just to wipe you know uh, wipe all the stigmatism away from it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been said before. I, I I need to do a little bit more research on exactly who that was and who they were referencing. Uh, There's no way of knowing, like you said, I mean, this is old shit.
1: Well, I Um, mean, there's reasons why the Jews set up shop in certain countries before the Rothschilds made their way. Right. There's a reason why Germany had such a large Jewish population. A lot of that has to do with the Crusades, honestly, and the spinoff of that and the fall of the Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. But all of that to say that a lot of them did try to assimilate into the local area. That's why I like a lot of Goldsteins, Goldbergs, a lot of Steins and Bergs, which are German names, are Jewish names these days. Although that may not be their traditional name, their tribal traditional name, that became the traditional name that they took up when they got to their countries of origin. Very similar to how... Uh, Italian families when they came to America got their names changed when they got to Staten Island because they couldn't pronounce it, so they were like, ah, fuck it, you're this now. Uh, yeah Same yeah. kind of vibe.
0: Yeah, it could be. It could be. It's just, it's interesting, you know, how y- you change, you end up, like, your last name is Red Shield and everything that plays into that, it's like, you know, it's almost like you ended up picking that name and it wasn't something that was, I mean, I know that all last names are event, like at some point picked, right? Like, right. It, and, and it's carried on throughout heritage and tradition and stuff like that. But I don't know. It makes you wonder like, what were they before? Who were they before? And why did they choose the red shield?
1: Right. I mean, Hey, who knows? Who knows? If it very well could be a whole reason behind all of it. Symbolic reasons. We do know that in the occult and in alchemy and in the Kabbalah, Right there a shield and a sword have to be in there. Red is a very significant color. Is it possible that your boy, Mayor Rothschild, Mayor Red Shield, named hims his family named that for a specific occult reason? Hey, who's to say, brother? who's to say?
0: Yeah, dude, I mean the red obviously red is a very significant occult number or occult color rather um for sure, and blood you know, it's a, for it's a, multiple a, reasons. well, it's power, really um yep. but then you get into the shield and what exactly that means within the occult nature you know and then you know like you said you got the sword you got the shield you got the the chalice i mean the, these are all like subconscious things that work in your mind for a very specific reason and if you're really trying to get into the occult and 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 like really create some magic bro, changing your fucking last name to the Red Shield? It's like, no longer do I need to bring that Red Shield and hang that in, in between the pillars of the doorway within the subconscious. I am that.
1: And is it not? We have talked about how words are spells.
0: Well, what's interesting is, is that the shield stands for obviously defense, but it's, uh, there's defense, but then it's also the earthly element. And so it's almost like defense of the earthly element. will think about it. If mm. they're the ones funding both sides of the war,
1: Oh, uh, you know, that's see. I know that I have a different perspective on it because I actually fight with these shields and all. But while the shield is a defensive weapon, I will say a good shield punch like that good front jab with it. Yo, the shield is absolutely an offensive weapon. If you know what you're fighting with. I'm just saying, oh, dude, and I believe well, the Rothschild saw it as an offensive weapon as well.
0: Well, it's it's the age old adage, bro, that offense wins games, but defense wins championships.
1: I've never heard this. Yeah, dude. I've heard yeah. the best defense is a good offense, and I've heard the best offense is a good defense, but okay. Well,
0: no, it's, I mean, defense wins championships. If you're, if I mean, think about it, bro. Like, if your starting quarterback goes down, you're probably not passing for much, but as long as your defense can hold it up, you're still going to win. You, your defense can create the yeah. turnovers and a couple of pick sixes, maybe a couple of fumble recoveries, and, you know, it, defense will always be the the best thing that you can have. I mean, think about us, bro. Like, the the reason why our military is so good, we have the best defense system in the world,
1: right? Well, yes, absolutely. We have the best defense, but we absolutely have the best offensive players in the field.
0: That's oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's both the the greatest defense and the greatest show on turf, like the fucking 99 Rams. It's like <laughs> we're just the fucking Heard boss at everything at that point. Unfortunately, I think that, you know, you know uh, it probably won't be that way for much longer in my opinion
1: oh i think america is not going to be going anywhere from its from the top of the the totem pole for any time soon uh unless we take ourselves down from that position
0: that's what i'm saying i think we're selling ourselves out to the globalist and and becoming more globalist and less
1: country you know loving well talking about global all that really does stem back to the rothschilds gonna be very honest with you so here we go, back into it here. after your boy died early, as it was, uh his brother James in France took over as the uh, commander-in- chief of the family dynasty. okay They actually have these positions within their own family, hmm. okay it's, it's very, very crazy how they set their family and business up to be what they are. Well, yeah, they saw um, themselves
0: as royals, bro, like.
1: Oh, they they became the royals. Right. They funded the royals. They, from, literal, from the ghetto. It was pretty wild. But anyway, so he was looking for new ways for the family to stay at the top of the game here, find new creative edges, if you will. And he found an opportunity in a new industry that had potential to change the world. He goes all in on the railroads, right? So steam engines were a new system that had never been really tested before, but they thought, hey, These railroads could really move that much cargo from point A to point B. We no longer have to do horse and buggy. We no longer have to do ships for months and shit. We can now control all the land travel on these goods. Sign me up. So he goes all in.
0: I mean, it's still like a big transportation thing that we're still using to this day. So pretty good idea, you know.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So he started in England in 1825. And throughout the 1840s, the Rothschilds bankrolled the massive railroad projects, connecting from also trading railroad bonds. Or I'm sorry, uh, they were collecting from also trading the railroad bonds and stocks. So they found that it was best to use other people's money in your business endeavors. So what they would do is they would sell railroad bonds to people these people would buy these bonds and they would use that money to fund the railroad, literally using other people's money to fund the projects. Then giving these people a cut of their earnings, their dividends, if you will. And they made their little money off the top. But of course the Rothschilds made their commission off the entire endeavor front and back. Oh yeah, dude.
0: Right. I mean, so yeah, they bonds, run... bonds. That's, that's a crazy thing, bro. It's like the, the idea of inventing bonds, bro. Like what a brilliant fucking like, scheme
1: (laughs) it's crazy you are using other people's money for your betterment and then making money off of their money to do it
0: it's the og it's insane it's the og stock market
1: dude right right so anyway they did this and uh basically they did this in the bonds and stocks they put them at the center of the largest large-scale shipping and manufacturing hub for all of europe everything bought and sold went through the Rothschilds at this point, probably being bought with currency that was traded by the Rothschilds to buy the manufactured goods that had to go on Rothschild railroads. It mm-hmm. was insane. Mm-hmm. So the industrial revolution or the, excuse me, the industrialists became literal gods because of the Rothschilds. You with me? So it, this was a level of wealth, a level of power that, it was it was hard to even categorize this time. It's hard to imagine this this much wealth. So it's very difficult for us to really think and process what this type of wealth really looks like because the Rothschilds were very secretive about how much wealth they had. They did not flaunt it. They, yeah, they lived in these big, fine estates. But I mean, so did a lot of other lords of the day and age, right? You just kind of thought it was that the nobility class and they just did what they did. But they didn't show it very often. Okay. But this is actually one of the only and rarest examples of the Rothschilds showing off their wealth. We're going to talk about this gentleman in just two seconds. So, James Rothschild starts his syndicate, okay, quote unquote, of, of course, uh, banking is at the heart of the syndicate, but he has his hands in every conceivable pot in the country as well as the continent but he starts mining the gold itself, okay? He starts setting up operations around the world anywhere where they think they have a gold mine. He wants to buy it. So now not only is he getting the information on the prices of the goods, he's now actually mining the gold, sending it to Europe, taxing the people, or taxing, excuse me, making commission for the entire process, then dictating what the value of this mined gold is before it hits the market for the country where his bank is already set up an operation to receive the gold. You see what I'm saying?
0: Oh, dude. I mean, he was an evil genius, bro. It's really what And it his is. whole
1: family was set up this way. The entire Rothschild clan went all in on this. They moved as a team. They moved in unison. So when the 1830 and 1843 French revolutions happened, the French bank, uh, excuse me, the French branches of the Rothschild banks neared collapse. Okay. The French and, uh, the Vienna, as a matter of fact, this was a new thing. The French was going through a revolution and they did not like the bourgeoisie capitalistic wealthy elitist class of dot, dot, dot. They were trying to kill the rich, right? Eat the rich, the guillotines, the whole nine. So this almost brought the French and Vienna branches of the Rothschild families to collapse, okay? James, the patriarch of the family based out of Paris, reached out to his nephew, Lionel, son of Nathan Rothschild, for help. Now, Lionel was in Britain, son of Nathan Rothschild, as we said, and he is the same Rothschild that you heard of that had the carriages drawn by the zebras, okay? This was this guy. Go ahead and read about our boy, Lord Walter Rothschild. I'm sorry. By the way, his name is Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild and his zebras.
0: That uh, the name of the article, it says that time. Oh, by the way, it's from uh, the vintage news dot uh, And the title of the article is that time. Lord Walter Rothschild drove a carriage pulled by six zebras to uh, to prove a point. And it says Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild loved animals. Many rich individuals splash their wealth about uh, about on cars or mansions or magnificent uh, collections of antiques, but instead Rothschild chose to spend his money on a private zoolog- uh, zoological museum. Walter was uh, heir to the immense Rothschild fortune. His father, the first Baron Rothschild and the first Jewish peer in England, was an immensely wealthy banker and politician. Rothschild broke in and trained uh, several zebras to pull a trap, which he uh, memorably used to visit Buckingham Palace. (laughs) Okay, so that was at Buckingham Palace in 1898
1: whenever he pulled up with the zebras. Um, It says... um, Because, you know, doing boss shit, rolling up to see the king and queen with my zebra-drawn carriage. Sorry, what's up, peasants?
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that's cute. You got a Rolls Royce. Get out of here with that bullshit machinery, all right? We got actual horsepower here, baby.
1: The amount of money it would take to, first off, have zebras in Britain, then train them, and then just to flaunt it like this. like You understand the amount of wealth and international connections it would take for a person to just be able to do this at their private zoo and shit?
0: Well, that's interesting that he was always into this. It says he first showed an interest in zoology at the age of seven and declared that he would have a uh, a museum dedicated to animals. At his home in Tring Park, he had a number of exotic creatures, including birds and kangaroos. It was with reluctance that he went to work with his father's bank at the age of 21, dreaming of his museum. He was shy and showed no ability in finance, but he persevered. As encouragement and compensation, uh, his forward-thinking father set up the zoological museum uh, he so dearly wanted. Um, Baron Rothschild sent an expedition across the world to find exhibits. Nathan died in 1915, and Walter, the new Baron Rothschild, continued to grow his museum. Before his death in 1937, he had collected 300,000 bird skins, 200,000 eggs, to, uh 2,250,000 butterflies, 30,000 beetles, and thousands of fish, reptiles, and mammals, owning a large private collection of zoological specimens ever seen. The museum was open to the public. But despite his shyness, Rothschild was headstrong. He was intent on dispelling many of the myths about animals commonly held at the time. One of these was the idea that zebras were untameable. He harnessed a team of zebras to a carriage and drove them to Buckingham Palace to prove this idea wrong. And he was often seen in the streets, uh, the streets of London, in a cart drawn by a single zebra. Uh, on another occasion, he mounted the back of a giant tortoise. <laughs> what? Uh, though he probably, uh, though probably, to not quite the same acclaim. Damn, that's a big ass tortoise. Just sitting on the back of that big bitch.
1: Yo, just rolling as uh, he does. With his Gucci boots, they see me rolling. Um, it says in
0: 1932, most of his bird collection was sold to the American Museum of Natural History to satisfy the blackmail demands of a former mistress. Ooh, uh, yeah, it'd be like that. He left the rest of the museum, uh, or I'm sorry, he left the rest of the collection to the British Museum in his will. The donation was the largest ever received by the museum. Yeah, okay. It says the the collection was, uh, however, kept intact at Tring and the Walter Rothschild Zoological Museum is officially a division of the Natural History Museum.
1: So, yeah, that's your boy Lionel, okay? I mean, hey, dude, he just liked liked animals, bro. That's all. Hey, I'm not knocking him for that, but I am just going to mention that at 21, he begrudgingly went into finance to work at his daddy's bank. He had no aptitude for it whatsoever, but he persevered. And he, this is pretty much the decision that made him become a man. What does it mean? As far as what does it
0: mean to be the first Baron? What is that like? The the old like the 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 heir.
1: Um. All right. So the Rothschilds are given the title Baron by the Austrian uh, royal family, and basically each one of them that set up one of these banks, each one of the five brothers became a Baron. So the patriarch of that branch is the baron of that branch. Then you have the commander in chief of the family operations who's over the entire world of it. But he is also a baron in his own right. So more or less uh, think of, yes, when the, the patriarch dies, when, when Nathan Rothschild died, he was the baron. Now your boy Lionel Walter is the baron.
0: Oh, a lot like the little Baron Trump.
1: If you will, okay. If you will, although his name is Baron, not his title. Although I guess, if, if once he, his grandfather dies and once his father dies, he would be the Baron of that industry, yes, yeah, so or that empire. Sure, they're trying to I build an that empire.
0: That yeah, they want they want the fucking historic time traveler of the late eighteen hundreds baron trump to be able to succeed and take over the planet bro and that's why trying donnie, to stay
1: ahead of the curb right they're what? trying to get the information before anybody else
0: dude donnie t's laying out that rainbow road right now for little baron bro and actually baron being you know as smart as fuck as he as he is and super tall dude that that kid's like six seven six eight it's it's pretty insane
1: oh no he's gonna be he's gonna be a problem when he when he gets older don't you or a problem for somebody I'll say that. I'm not mad at it. I like the Trumps, honestly. Yeah, they're rich and they're assholes. and da, da, da. So, eh. they they came up from that, bro. They got it. Don't get mad at them. I mean, yeah, dude.
0: Ballers going to ball.
1: You know, haters going to hate and taters going to potate. But that being said, your boy Lionel, this is the decision that took him from that begrudging like, oh, I guess I'll go work at my dad's bank. This is the decision that moved him into what would become his boss status era, right? Yes. So, his uncle, patriarch commander in chief of the family dynasty, reaches out to him for help. Now, Lionel sees the bailout as a risk. Okay. He was asking to bail out the French and Vienna or the Paris and Vienna branches. Lionel saw it as a risk, but he also acknowledged that if the money doesn't stay within the family, they all will suffer. Right. So, if these two banks go down, that means the Rothschilds just lost their foothold in two countries. Like that, that, that's something that can't be replaced. That power vacuum will be taken by somebody else. And if we lose that money, we're not getting that money back.
0: Unacceptable. You know what I'm saying? Unacceptable.
1: Unacceptable. And besides that, he remembers the words of his granddaddy that said that above all else, family unity must be at the core of this business. So, so he bails them out. are,
0: are the Rothschilds still banging cousins there or is that like an old thing?
1: That rule is uh, still in effect today, sir. Wow. As far as uh, intermarrying, now, I don't know who they be banging. they be having the mistresses. Yeah. But as far as having babies goes, it's second cousin, first cousin, or not at all.
0: Thou shalt not spill the seed on the floor when uh, in the presence of thou cousin.
1: I suppose, you know, I, I suppose. Uh, uh, but don't worry, we're actually going to get into a little bit of scripture here in a minute. So... Uh, hold on, where we at?
0: Well, that's not scripture. We debunk that. Remember?
1: Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. <laughs> uh, here we go. He grants the loan. Uh, he single handedly saved the international corporation, and then he set his sights on changing the laws to better their endeavors. Okay, now Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild has ambitions. He uses his wealth to buy a lot of press. And he gets elected to the House of Commons. Now, here's the deal. Up until this year, Jews were not even allowed to hold seats in the House of Commons. Like, again, Jews have been very persecuted around the world. A lot of countries around Europe do not have laws that make Jews able to do jack shit. They're allowed to do banking. But, like, a lot of these laws that prevented them from doing sales of, like, fresh fruits and shit were still in effect in Germany. It was weird. But... The Rothschilds didn't care about that. They were making their money with the banking. But they decided that they wanted to better the Jewish situation around Europe, specifically for themselves, but also, you know, all the kinfolk would also benefit from it too. So it was kind of a win-win, right? Mm. So he used his wealth to buy a lot of press, and he gets elected to the House of Commons. August of 1847, after the House had earlier that year passed a law that even allowed Jews to hold the seats that same year, Okay, Lionel Day Rothschild entered as the liberal candidate for the city of London, and Lionel won. Upon his swearing in, there was a little bit of a problem that arose. Okay, see, there was a rule that said you had to swear in on the Christian Bible to be a member of the House of Commons. Um, He swore, loudly proclaimed that he will swear to the Old Testament, but not to the New. This was sufficient. He swore in. The next year, that rule was removed from the books.
0: Uh, as, as, I mean, you can't really blame him for that. I mean, he's Jewish. That's his beliefs.
1: I oh, no, no. I'm not talking shit on it. I'm just mentioning the fact that this was all because of him being a Jew. And so he swore to the Old Testament. The next year, with all of his power and clout, he just had that rule taken the fuck down. Yeah, so they- now all Jews, all of his family had free and clearance to jump on into the political realm.
0: They prefer that dickhead God, bro. The Old Testament God was a
1: dick. Well, they prefer the Talmud God where they just have a lot of rules to follow. Which basically, the, Tal-
0: the, basically the Talmud is basically just the Old Testament. I mean, there's added the Talmud, shit into it, but it's basically the Old Testament, right?
1: The Talmud is the Old Testament and the entire law of Moses. And it's the basically, the Talmud is... A compilation of rules that you should do just in case X, Y, or Z thing happens. Ari Shafir just did a big stand-up about it called Jew. And he talks because he was in a, a rabbi school, rabbinical school for a while. And he is now like a devout atheist. And he just talks shit on Judaism. And when he talks about the Talmud and what it is, I actually looked into it. He's not wrong. It's just a giant rule book.
0: Oh, I didn't know he was an atheist now.
1: Oh, he is the devout atheist. So, like, there's even this one part about, a. Uh, so you know they can't eat ham. Right. Which, that makes okay. sense. Fine, fine, fine. But, like, let's say, hypothetically, you were making a big pot of soup, and a Goya came up and threw some ham in the soup and ran off. Because Goya's be fucking up Jews like that. Mm. How much ham to soup ratio is too much before you have to throw the whole soup away?
0: Well, I guess if you're anti-ham, it doesn't matter what the ratio is, if there's even a fragment, right? You'd toss it.
1: Actually, the Talmud says it's a 1 to 60 ratio. There's an actual word associated with this rule, and that's an actual thing that's in the book. Like the most obscure rules that may or may not ever apply to you, they have in the Talmud.
0: 1 to 60. That is such a strange
1: rule. There's a full word and description so- for this. Like, it's a hypothetical situation. The entire Talmud is all, like, hypothetical situations that you're supposed to live by. Which, again, not talking shit on it. No. These people have found their good walk by this book and by those rules and more blessings to them. Nothing against
0: it. I'd actually like to learn a little bit more about the Talmud. You know, if, if it's got those so. kind of rules, it's probably a lot of, um, like, mystical shit, I imagine.
1: I would love to have a rabbi come on the show. I'm telling you, I said it earlier. I will say it again. And man, I we really should have one come out. Any of the cult members out there know any rabbis that would love to come on and just kind of talk about their faith on a podcast, hit us up.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the the Talmud, that's that's what rabbis teach. They they I mean, because the Talmud is, is inherently Jewish, right? Like that's a Jewish that's,
1: thing. Yeah. Specifically only Jews right? so they read the Torah, which is the Old Testament, and the Talmud, which is their uh, modern-esque uh, holy books, collection of holy books.
0: Oh, that's—I I got those two confused, the Torah and the Talmud. Okay, yeah, the Torah yeah. is the Old Testament, the Talmud. Okay, I got you.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, where we leave off. Uh, he has ambitions, he uses wealth, boom, he wins the seat in London under the liberal uh, slot. Upon his swearing in, I told you about the whole Bible situation. Now, as James ages out, Lionel begins taking on the role as the family's new patriarch and commander-in-chief. Around this time, a new global financial powerhouse has made itself known. From the seemingly forgotten little British former colony, J- this guy named Julius Morgan and the American Industrial Age are officially on the global map. Okay. I do Got to turn this page.
0: Turning pages,
1: bro. I got, dude, I got notes upon notes upon notes in here. And then I had to actually go over where we had our commercial road out.
0: I, oh, yeah, I see where you, uh, I see, you know, you've taken a lot of, a lot of, uh, homework here. You've you've really done your homework as far as this episode goes. And I know you kind of had to because you can't just write a page or two about the fucking Rothschilds, dude. Like, that's a deep, deep
1: hole. It is. It is so interwoven in so many things and the connection, like I said, the connections made, the deals done, the strategic timing of it all to get them where they're at. And then when you, when we get to the end of this and you realize how vast this network is and to what degree they really do have control, it's, it's fucking, it's flooring, dude. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, oh, yeah. so your boy Junius Morgan. Okay, he steps onto the scene in our story right around the time when Otto von Bismarck is making his push in Europe. The European banks all decide to not back France in the upcoming war. They see it as a risky business move. Okay, and by the European banks, I do in fact mean the Rothschilds. Even the German Frankfurt branch decided to not back. the. I'm sorry, uh, the French branch in Paris decided to not back the French in this war because they knew that Bismarck was about to ransack them and they knew that France ain't going to be paying any reparations to anybody. They're about to get taken over. So obviously they're going to back the winning horse, right? Fair. Now keep in mind the French have never not paid a debt ever. That's like been their big staple, even through Napoleon and all of this. France has a very diverse economy at this time, so they are able to tax multiple different facets of their of their nation's people, and they will make their payments. They always have. They've never defaulted on a loan. So with that being understood, this, uh, this American syndicate through Morgan, uh, he raises 10 million pounds for the French army as well as grants the French government permission to buy United States weapons. This is the first time, arguably, that the United States military-industrial complex was fielded in another country.
0: Okay, totally off topic here. I want to ask your opinion on this is the Is so, the idea behind taxes does that stem from the idea of
1: tithe dollars, like
0: tithe money? No,
1: no. Tithe is a Jewish rule that had to do with the religious factions. Taxes had to do with the laws of the land that you live in.
0: Right, but obviously, like, Hive was a thing before taxes, right?
1: Or not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, taxes go back to, I mean, the earliest forms of mankind had a government, and they wanted to come around to collect their tribute. That's always been the way.
0: Gotcha, you, gotcha. You. Okay. So, I mean,
1: they may have called it by a different name. Sure, they may have called it Tribute. Or they may have called it, but I mean, tax has kind of been the understood thing since, I mean, ancient Greece, the the ancient Muslim countries, China had its earliest forms of it. I mean, yeah, everywhere has pretty much had tax since the beginning of time. Yeah, they they're they're pretty relatable though. Um, I could see why somebody would make that conclusion. But, and I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the tithe itself, but we can really quick. Uh, the tithe was not meant to be a tax for money. As a matter of fact, tax was actually, for, or excuse me, tithe, it was forbidden to give money as your tithe. Mm. It had to be food or it had to be your talents, right? It's so like if you were a blacksmith, you wouldn't donate your food to the church or to the temple storehouse. You might donate whatever blacksmith or metal work needs to be done for the temple, you would do that for free. And that would be your tithe, right? It was it was in that way. It was actually forbidden to give money. The only time in the entire Bible where tithe and money are brought up in the same context are in the old testament when it talks about if the Lord has blessed you so abundantly with grain that you are not able to carry it all to the temple storehouse. Not the temple, temple storehouse, a whole separate building, another way to keep corruption out of God's house. But anyway, sell the grain locally, carry the money near the temple storehouse, buy equal parts grain and donate it there. It was for transportation, right? For ease of transportation, right? The other was when Jesus came in and saw that the Pharisees were making money off of the tithes he went outside and made a bullwhip and drove them out and said that you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. So my God is very, very clear that money don't belong in his house. So to answer your question, no, tithe was never actually meant to be a financial thing.
0: Interesting. Okay. You know what? I I've just also, realized that I've been saying it wrong. I, I always thought there was tithe, but it's
1: tithe with a T H T I T H E.
0: Damn. You learn something new every day.
1: And as a further point to that, A farmer would actually have to tithe a tenth of his fields. There would be a tenth of his field that would be just left. The homeless and the hungry and the sick could come and pick off of that anytime they wanted. He left it completely open for everybody. That was a tithe doing the Lord's work of tenth of his harvest, if you will. So anyway, again, no money. Taxes, specifically money every time.
0: Okay. Okay. I got you. So, All right. Sorry. I didn't mean to take you down that rabbit it, hole.
1: No, no, no. You're good. And I can see where the comparisons would be. Like, it's a uh, obligatory giving, if you will. But one's actually obligatory. One is actually supposed to be done out of a heart of charity. Different thing. But anyway, moving forward. Um. So... All of the European banks, all the Rothschilds, they actually back Autobahn Bismarck because they know that France is about to get their shit pushed in, and they're not going to back a losing side, obviously. They're just going to let it fall by the wayside, and the chips are just going to fall where they may with France. They're going to move all their assets out of the Paris banks. They're going to move all their assets out of there so that their shit doesn't get destroyed, but they'll be fine. Business will be good. Whatever. It's war profiteering. They've done it before. They'll do it again, by God. Right? By God. But... But, but, but Morgan comes in and says, hey, I will personally raise 10 million pounds for France. He did that by selling bonds, okay? Mm. And then with his connections, he's going to buy certain laws and certain legislation to where now France is able to buy United States weapons, okay? So now the military-industrial complex of the United States that has never been fielded before on any other foreign theater of battle because we were just coming out of a civil war. Now, we are able to send weapons to France. They're able to buy from us. This is a clutch move when the French are about to go into war because, again, the French have always paid their debts, regardless. You with me?
0: alanista always pays his debts.
1: Well, yes, but the French have a very diverse economy. So it's not like... If France goes down, their entire country goes down. Like, certain industries are going to be happening regardless of what the war looks like. Does that make sense? Mm, mm -hmm. So because of that, France always has a group to tax. Therefore, they're always able to make their payments. So it's like there are certain countries that are just kind of set up like that. But anyway.
0: They have uh, literal cheese everywhere, dude.
1: It'd be like that. They do, in (laughs) fact, have that stanky cheese, dude. France got that little extra stanky guap on them from time to time. Yeah, they do. But anyway, so the conflict ended in the decisive German victory, as expected. Uh, 1871, the Treaty of Frankfurt is signed, and the French end up having to pay their debt, and Junius Morgan walks away with a fortune, personally making $1.5 million in the whole ordeal. His company made like 100 times that. Okay, so the French lose. They pay after they lick their wounds, and they pay their debts to them. He comes out smelling like a rose. Now, this propels him to the international world of government financing. He just, for the first time ever, an American banker. No one paid attention to the American banks at this time. People thought, oh, that old British colony. Yeah, they're, they're wild. They're doing their thing over there. They're like, they are killing themselves. They just cut their own country in half and are killing their own brothers over this shit. Look at them. They're fucking animals. No one, pretty much the people slept on America for a while. Okay, hmm. out of nowhere, Junius Morgan funds a European conflict. Oh, he's on the map, and certain people take notice. Now, put a big pin in him for a minute, because we're going to talk about the Rothschilds, but we will be circling back to Mr. Morgan here shortly. Are we talking about JP Morgan? The, his father, Junius Morgan.
0: Got you. Okay, so yeah, I just saw the J. Morgan. I'm like, okay, this is around the around that time, at least.
1: Same family. Oh, same family, and it is absolutely around the time you're thinking, brother. Okay. So, James Rothschild dies in 1868, and Lionel officially takes charge. Yes, that same Lionel with the zebras, the one who did not want to work at his daddy's bank, but who literally propped up two sections of the five of the family function when the time came. He is now taking over as the Don, the Baron, the Commander-in-Chief of the Rothschild Financial global conglomerate.
0: Bullshit. Okay. That's Boss interesting shit. to see what he's going to do if, since he's just like, he's like, don't even want nothing to do with it, but it gets crazy. See, but now
1: he's taking the reins. He has ambitions of actual global expansion. He doesn't want just Europe dog. That's cute. But those minds that we have running into those other countries, We need to set up some serious shop in those other countries. So he allocates 37% of all family resources and develops projects in Egypt and India, namely the railroads. Okay, that was like the big, big thing. He industrializes insane and soaks insane money into India's railway system. This is around the same time when the British Empire still had India as a vassal. So now, not only are they raping India of its resources, they're doing it at mock fucking railway speeds funded by the Rothschilds themselves. Okay. And Egypt also had a very, very big uh, industrial uh, push at this time. Egypt was a part of the British Commonwealth as well, which is why you have uh, the uh, University of Oxford at Cairo, for instance. That was because the British Empire ran Egypt at this day and age. Got you. Got you. Okay. So... He also recognizes the changing of the times, okay, and there are new empires that are taking places of the old ones, and new alliances need to be made. So from 1850s to the 1870s, America is booming, and if we want to get technical, it really never stopped. Uh, The industrialization, the westward expansion, and the transcontinental railroads have all gave way to a massive, massive, massive amount of new business opportunities in the former British colony, now known as the United States of America. Okay, so in 1869, there are three names that reign supreme in this continental U.S. That would be Cornelius Vanderbilt with the railroads. Mm. Your boy, Andrew Carnegie with U.S. Steel. Shout, and out, our home boy, shout out
0: to Pittsburgh native Carnegie, bro.
1: In fact, in fact, and then also we have to mention the OG in oil, John D. Rockefeller. Himself. Mm. Right. Now, all three of these dudes had to go through your boy Junius Morgan. He was the bank, he was the financial guy who propped all of these motherfuckers' business endeavors up. They couldn't do shit without him. Okay. So the Rothschilds realize that they have slept on the former British colony and that the Rothschilds decide that they want in on some of that action going on in America. But as any shark knows, the best time to attack. Is after there's blood in the water. Right? <laughs> now, this bloodletting, quote unquote, happens on May 9th of 1893. Following decades of massive railroad industry over-expansion and over-financing, the entire railroad industry collapsed in America. And that is also why we have so many of these towns in the middle of bumfuck nowhere desert that sprung up. They're like the railroad was supposed to go through that town and didn't because like the industry just fell out. And everybody couldn't understand why, like we need railroads. What do you mean the industry fell out? They kept going off of more and more borrowed money, borrowed money, borrowed money. But when you inflate it for so long, eventually it has to give out. Mm. You can't keep pouring out of an empty cup. Does that make sense?
0: Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, that just really makes me think of like um old Route 66.
1: Perfect example. You know, well,
0: like that's a that's that's ghost shit anymore. Nobody goes down Route 66 anymore. Like there's um there's actually a, a a city or a town, I should say, out here in Arizona called Oatman, and you get to go to the literal end of The historic Route 66, and it ends up in like this old, 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 like fucking trading villa or village rather. I
1: have to go here. I must go here before I die.
0: It is so cool, dude. They have, they have like just like stray donkeys walking around everywhere.
1: And you like the you know the the you
0: can go buy some oats or grass or whatever the fuck, and you can feed them the little the little oat nuggets. It's pretty
1: cool. Um, Cult members help us make this dream a reality of doing the podcast full time, so we can start taking trips like this and making content. At the end of Route sixty six, that is an episode in and of itself, bro. Dude, Come one, on,
0: dude. I've I went there every year since I was a little kid. It's awesome. Um. So, it, and they actually put on like an old western show to where they have like a Hell draw. Yeah. It's like a draw, and like they they put on a little show. It's fucking awesome. But yeah, it's like you can see these old ass houses that have been there for a couple hundred years, and it's just old as shit. And it's all in the mountains and the terrain and everything. It's it's pretty badass, dude.
1: That is pretty wild, man. See, I want to go to these places. There's so many. See, that's the type of trips that excite me. Yes, I want to go to Rome. Yes, I want to go to the Vatican. But I also want to go to the end of Route 66, Hell yeah. right? And I want to go to like Savannah, right? Georgia and go check out the old historical sites. And like, I want to go to Philly again and like go this time. Don't go for just a few hours, like spend some time there. I want to go to like Connecticut to these old places, these old battlegrounds. Like Fucking I got so many random things I want to go see. Gettysburg, bro. Dude, I see I saw Gettysburg, but I didn't see it from Gettysburg. I saw it from Camp David, oh, which I, I had a really good look of it, but I want to get a up close look at Gettysburg, bro. I got
0: to but walk anyway. I got to walk on the field, bro. It was awesome. One day, one day. Yeah, well, especially like if we can dude, imagine if we go out there with our boy um uh uh, Big Grimbowski, whenever he brings out like all of his old like his uh ghost equipment and ghost detection I was say, shit, dude,
1: we get him and uh in Chaz of the Dead. Doesn't he do that? Chaz too?
0: of the Dead too. Yeah, like oh well, we, I mean we got a bunch of of buddies, you know, other podcasters that are into that kind of stuff. And imagine going out there and fucking on the field of Gettysburg right there, which uh, keep in mind is not a huge
1: place. No. But tell me that that is not a crazy YouTube video style collab that needs to fucking happen. Come on, man.
0: I'd I'd oh. actually be shocked if it hasn't already happened. And if, if it hasn't already happened, shame on the ghost hunters out
1: there. No, I'm saying we need to make this happen with our boys. I agree. Fuck those ghost hunters. They were probably lying. We got guys that know <laughs> what's up. Like, you know what I'm
0: saying? Yeah, dude.
1: Let's get Christy out there. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Why not?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's just get super weird.
1: So anyway, back to the action here. Um, So the bloodletting happens, like I said, whenever the railway industry collapses. May 9th, 1893, following decades of the railroad industry overexpanding, it collapses, causing one of the worst depressions in history, the Panic of 1893. And everybody could look that up if you would like to see all of what that affected in America. President Grover Cleveland is determined to maintain the gold standard, okay? At the time, the British pound was the global standard, and he was worried that making the United States dollar harder to transfer to the British pound would delegitimize the United States as a whole. So the U.S. was low in actual gold at this time, and they were in the middle of a big depression caused by the railway collapse. So Grover Cleveland says we need gold. We need to stock up like I I don't know who's got it. I don't know what we got to do. But uh, your boy Junius Morgan, he happens to know who has some gold and he knows what kind of conversation needs to happen with these people in order to make sure that some gold uh, gets got.
0: You know what this reminds, reminds me of? a little call You know mm. what this reminds me of is, uh, you know, they weren't taking America seriously and the U.S. dollar seriously or anything like that. Everybody was like, ah, you know, these, these fucking people, they don't know what they're doing. Like, they ain't nothing really on the big dogs of the, the globalists of the time or whatever. You know, that's kind of how we look at BRICS now, if you really yeah. want to compare it. Like, people aren't really taking BRICS very serious. They're saying it's basically just a scam or a joke, and it's not going to work, so don't even worry about it. But... I don't know, it could be, you know, resembling, you know, old school America here.
1: I'm saying that BRICS won't, it could work if it would have been done differently. Like the system being backed by gold, bankrolling the systems that they're trying to run. Like, I, I understand it. I am saying that it was started by countries that were already kind of doomed to fail. Like if America would have decided to start a BRICS or even, not even America, let's say, um, I don't know, let's say Germany or a first world Western power decided to start a new financial system that was gold-backed, we'd be having a different conversation. It's the fact that the countries that started it were already like almost to the verge of bankrupt with the exception of like three of them. And it's just it, – the the moves that they're making, it's not It's – they're trying to be the Rothschilds, but I have a feeling they're going to end up just, you know – Really, really broke. And I I think that's because the Rothschilds have stacked the deck so heavily in their favor that nobody could make their way anymore. Or at least that's what we have been led to believe.
0: Well, I mean, the theory is, is that the Rothschilds own 90% of all money in the world that they have accumulated over. The number that I saw is that they've accumulated over five hundred and fifty trillion dollars.
1: Oh no, dude! Seven hundred trillion was the one for just Jacob Rothschild himself today.
0: Seven hundred trillion? Yeah, holy f-
1: fudge bro. Oh no, 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 no! When I'm talking, when I'm telling you, God tier status wealth, it is a insane number for a normal human to even grasp. Bro, you could buy
0: an NFL team for under two billion, and this dude has seven hundred trillion.
1: Oh, no, that's just, yeah, you want to talk about what his bank has or what his nephews have or what his great-grandchildren will have? Dude, that's what I'm saying. Like, the brick system is a good idea. I don't think the Rothschilds are shaking in their wee little boots about it. You feel me? Yeah. yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, and that might be the reason why the wars are happening is because the Rothschilds are scared because they see it as a threat. But, hey, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. We'll get into that when we start talking about the modern day. All right, all right. So, President Grover Cleveland is determined to make this happen. He goes to Morgan and says, hey, we need gold. You're the guy. You're you're my guy. So, I need you to be my guy right now and make the yellow shiny shit happen. And Morgan's like, look, I understand what I need to do, and I know who I need to call. But um, you also understand this means we're going to have to give a little bit to get a little bit. And uh, he knew which family had a lot of gold so for the last three decades the Rothschilds have been strategically buying gold and silver mines all over the world as a way to control the market prices controlling the supply and demand on bullion is the epitome of controlling the market say what you want that that is it you've cut out every bit of the middleman you have made yourself the guy so your boy Morgan raises 65 million by issuing government bonds and uses that money to enter negotiations with the Rothschild family. He used bond money to even get the attention of the Rothschilds. Your boy is a fucking savage.
0: Mafioso, bro, at its core. That's
1: it. That is it. it, is, it this is what they I wish the Mafia thinks they uh want to become these people, right? They emulate <coughs> these people.
0: Yeah, they probably got that idea from
1: him, dude. I would think so. But anyway, Um, So, he purchases 3.5 million ounces of gold for the government. Now, this merger made the gold bond one of the most lucrative investments on earth, and they sell out in 30 minutes once offered to the United States public. Wow. So, you want to talk about return on investments. 30 minutes, you made your money back, and you got the attention you need to get, and America's got the gold it needs. It's a win-win-win-win. In 30 minutes. Yeah, that's dude. power.
0: Yeah, Taylor Swift ain't got shit on them, dude. Selling out—that That out, is selling out tickets that buying quick.
1: power. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. This is before the internet, dude. This is before, like, they were doing this via mail. 30 minutes they were sold out. Now that is buying power. I don't care what you say, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So as a stipulation of all of this merging in the gold and the this and the this, the Rothschild said, yo, we'll sell you our gold. No doubt. But we will be setting up outposts in America in whatever strategic locations we see fit. And we will be absolutely conducting business from this point forward. And you're not, you're going to stay the fuck out of our way. The deal was struck. And uh, nowhere did the Rothschilds set up as heavily as they did in the financial capital of the young nation, New York City. Hmm. So by the end of the 1800s, in the beginning of the 1900s, Europe was gearing up for another massive war, right? Countries were drawing lines. Military industrial complexes were going off the charts, okay? Uh, the head of the London Rothschilds, a man called Natty Rothschild at this time, um, he was Nathan Rothschild, but he was named after his grandfather, so they called him Natty Rothschild, head of the British outpost. He advocates the British government to expand all of their naval strength. That was a a big quote that he did was like, look, Britain needs a Navy. Like, yeah, yeah. Do you see what's going on in Europe right now? Britain needs a Navy. You need ships. You know what you need? You need ships. You need steel. You need docks. You need workers. Hey, listen, let me bankroll that endeavor for you. I'm telling you, man, you need ships. This happened across Europe. Every bank was urging their country to industrialize, modernize, and gear up, gear up, gear up. More tanks, more guns, more bombs, more artillery pieces. We need more of this shit. What What year was this around? This was the beginning of the 1900s.
0: Oh, that's whenever the that's whenever the Rothschilds came in and set up shop in New York was in the beginning of the 1900s. Uh,
1: that actually happened in 18. Hold on. 1893 was when the big uh, depression happened. And when I tell you that, like, that deal that that Morgan made, that was critical. The United States was days away from not having any more gold in their reserves. Like, they were literal days away from the United States having to declare bankruptcy because our dollar was still gold-backed. So, the Rothschilds knew that. So when J.P. Morgan made that money happen, approached the Rothschilds and said, hey, listen, I'm here to buy your gold. And they said, yeah, well, we'll sell you the gold, but we're setting up shop. It's not like he had any kind of leverage to say yes or no to this. He needed this gold because they were days away from the entire country collapsing. But he made it happen. Gotcha. That was the blood in the water, dog. The shark smelled the blood in the water and they said, all right, I'll take my bite out of that pie real quick.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that it was around the time that the uh, New York Stock Exchange was created, but that was in the uh, early 1800s. But it really, uh, well, really the late 1700s, was whatever, whenever it really first started, was with 24 brokers uh, signing this uh, this Buttonwood Agreement, which set the floor with the commission rate charge to clients and bound uh, the signers to give preference to the other signers in security sales. So basically, that was you know the, the beginning of the New York Stock Exchange, but it really didn't become what we know it to be today until the late 18 hundos
1: so the stock exchange is going to play in here when we get to the 1980s but right now we're sticking pre-world war one right so yeah the stock exchange was definitely happening but when they set up shop in new york they weren't worried about the stocks they're worried about industry they they want military industrial complex they want steel they want railways they just bailed out america so they came in to bail out all of the assets that were about to be liquidated. So now the Rothschilds are running America's railways and our oil and our banks and our gold. Everything. They run this shit, dude. Or at least they have their fingers in it. How about that? They may not run it. They're making their 8% commission. You feel me?
0: I mean, that's still power. You're making 8% commission off of every single sale.
1: The money is the power because at that point we're like we're talking about 700 trillion like yo that is a god tier amount of money it's a superpower mm. there is no such thing as impossible when you have that type of money oh
0: yeah dude very Tona, so, anyway. tony tony montana
1: like bro oh yes oh that uh, tony montana was trying to get to this level my boy but anyway so everybody's gearing up for war across europe everybody's gearing up gearing up gearing up well now they've got all these big guns and big tanks they need to use it Europe needs a war. June 28th, 1914, Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated and the world is plunged into World War I. Within, uh, with an estimated 10 million soldiers dead and another 7 million civilians dead, the world and the Rothschilds had never really experienced a massive economic shift to this, to this scale before. Up until now, war has made money. And war has, yes, there's going to be death, There's going to be some destruction, but it was never done to this scale. Millions just died in a very short amount of time. That shifted economic scales. That shifted industrial scales, right? These people that used to be in the factories making goods, the workers aren't here anymore. So it really did show them that, all right, if we're going to make war profitable, we have to start thinking long-term war profiteering no longer just worried about the reparations like we used to do in the old school, right? The kings and the queens are dead now. World War I was pretty much the end of the monarchy age in Europe. From that point onward, we now have prime ministers. We now have uh, ministers of defense. We now have this, yeah, the lords and the nobles and the earls still have their little titles. You're not getting a, uh, could be a general in the British Royal Navy just because you're the Earl of Sussex, anymore does that make sense <laughs> right you ain't like, got the pool
0: that you, you once had
1: your title is cute but yo i need a fucking naval officer not some guy who's thinks that his uh hereditary traits make him a great leader does that make sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so this shifted a lot of perspectives and it shifted a lot of how they started to do business So they shift their focus from the old school imperialistic government investment model into this new age of government bonds and war profiteering because they discovered that where there is chaos, there is money to be made. Right. So chaos magic, Aleister
0: Crowley style, baby. Go ahead. Chaos magic, Aleister Crowley style,
1: if you will, Mm. if you will. So they set up shop in America, the 1920s, the roaring 20s, extremely profitable for them, right? Everybody's buying things on credit, 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 credit. J.P. Morgan is now in, uh, in control. His dad, Junius, had died by this point, if I'm not mistaken. And it is just blowing and going. But at the same time, the Rothschild started to take a weird step back in Europe. Because of World War I, and because they are trying to give the image to the world that their financial ties have all been severed, because all their ties were to the Royals. That was to the old guard, not to this new. In reality, they gave the appearance that their lines have been severed. They just got smarter and started being a little different with their investment models. In 1935, the Jewish Chronicle suggested, with perhaps even a bit of relief, that quote the Rothschild heyday has been waning and the most inter- intellectually gifted of the next generation of Rothschild men has turned his back on the family business so the Jewish Chronicle was even saying look the Rothschilds ain't even what they used to be anymore that was a Jewish paper that was around Europe at this time and they were saying like look y'all it's a sad day our Jewish brethren at the top ain't even at the top anymore This was 100% incorrect, but that was the image they wanted the world to see. The family began to take a step back from all public life, and this gave the world the impression that they were fragmented. This was furthered by the rising anti-Jewish ideas spreading through Europe at this time. If you will pull up the picture that I have, sir, it's a black and white it is a bit of Nazi rhetoric, and uh, I can't read all of the words, but you'll be able to see how they are drawing connections between certain political figures at this time and showing that everybody was connected to the Jewish bankers because these evil Jews and da, 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 da It was a big, big push. Um, there we that's go. the one. This was Nazi propaganda, but if you zoom in on some of these names at the bottom that are all connected, you'll see they they really were trying to show that the Jews were evil all over Europe.
0: Yeah, so uh, obviously Stalin. Uh, what is that, Mayoski?
1: Mayovsky, yeah. Uh,
0: Churchill, which is probably Winston, right?
1: Winston uh, Churchill from England.
0: Um, and then Finkelstein, Wallach, and then Roosevelt, and then yeah, oh, that would be uh, his financial advisor. Then you get to Barack, Baruch, Barack. Oh, um, I didn't see that one. Yeah, yeah, dude, and uh, obviously a bunch of stars of David's uh, that are going on here.
1: So my point is, though that this huge anti-German sentiment was starting to spread all over Europe, and it was coming out of Germany primarily from a guy with a funny mustache. But it wasn't just in Germany. People don't like to re- recognize this, but there was also people spitting fascist, anti-Jewish rhetoric in America, in England, in Spain, in Russia. The fascist movement tried to take hold around the same time that the communist movement was trying to take hold. They had whole uprisings in Europe where people were going out and just beating the shit out of Jews in the streets before World War II kicked off. So pretty much the entirety of Europe blamed the Jews and their bullshit banking and their bullshit financial, da-da-da, for the entire war start to finish. They were pissed. And they started to take it out on them. And then, of course, you have this Crazy guy with a weird mustache that just got the whole crowd going. You know, he's got the right words to say, a little bit of some mob mentality, and then boom, we have a real problem on our hands.
0: What a strange mustache to to rep, bro. Like
1: think- it actually goes back to his military service. Um, if you look at uh, the military regulations, basically a Hitler mustache is like the only thing you could rock in the military. That goes back to his days in World War I fighting in the trenches because the gas masks had to fit their face. So the only mustache they were allowed to keep was that little kept one. So he just rocked that and made it his new status. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of a nod to his time in the trenches. Uh, he also was trying to change the image because at that time, the German aristocracy, their big thing was the big scar across their face. If you ever see a big Nazi scar on some of those top generals, That was another big thing in Germany at that time. That had to do with old school German aristocracy and the fencing that took place at certain schools by the certain elite. It was wild times, Uh, wild times. mm -hmm. But anyway, so the new, uh, a new power was forming in Germany and it needed funding to make it move. The Rothschilds and the Morgan banks funded the Nazi regime through a series of private business investors, A very famous mention of this is through our boy, Prescott Bush. Your boy, dude. Grandfather to your, uh, to actually father to George DHW and then grandfather to George W. So Prescott Bush, for anybody who doesn't know, once upon a time was an investment banker with Brown Brothers Harriman or BBH and was acting as a U.S. base or it was acting as a U.S. base for the German industrialist Fritz Fissen. As Thyssen Krupp is a company you may have heard of these days. Yes. This was absolutely funding the Nazi war machine and the Nazi party, but it was being done through the banking systems of the Rothschilds and the Morgans because they were the ones in control of the gold worldwide. Let me put it like this War means money, right? War requires money. We talked about that in the beginning. That didn't change just because we're in the 1940s now. So where did Hitler get the money to fund the Third Reich? If you Google search this, you'll find a bunch of things how Hitler himself made money from book sales. That's not what I just asked you, though. How did the Third Reich make money? Oh, well, they took money from the Jews. Okay, they pillaged their neighborhoods and took their belongings. That's not enough to fund a a decade-long war campaign. What funded the Third Reich? And unfortunately, when you go down that breadcrumb trail far enough, it does, in fact, go to the gold. And either way you go, that gold was mined by the Rothschilds, donor given from a Rothschild bank, and that the Morgans, through Prescott Bush, through your boy Frisk Thyssen, absolutely funded this campaign start to finish. They saw this as a massive war profiteering endeavor. And yes, they understood the Jews were going to die as a result of it. And yes, they knew that that means that they would lose their Frankfurt outpost. But they also saw this as, you know, just you got to sacrifice that to the game. Because they weren't worried about Frankfurt anymore. Because New York City was popping the fuck off. You with me?
0: Prescott Bush. That was uh, old 322, right?
1: Yeah. Yes, it was. Okay. Yes, it was. He was, if I'm not mistaken, the... He wasn't the first Bush in the Skull and Bones Society, but he absolutely was a member. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Fucking pigs and stuff. Jesus. Absolutely. So then Bush went on to become the director of Union Banking Corporation, or UBC, based out of New York City. Funny how that works out after all the smoke is cleared and the, the debts are settled. He becomes the head of the UBC. Okay. He also did that later on, and he went into political realms. But he wouldn't have gone anywhere near politics if it wasn't for his time dealing with banking, dealing with Morgan, dealing with Rothschild. <clears throat> Excuse me. Get it out of you, dude. You're presenting a uh, really so,
0: a, a really good show here. I just want to let you know that you're doing a great job.
1: I appreciate that, man. And we are going to be wrapping it up here relatively soon.
0: I want to, but uh, I almost want to just go over there and just give you a little ruffle of that cloth beard. Just I'm as a,
1: telling you, dog, this beard be looking really good today. It's having. I'm having a good beard day. Just it's as actually like a, functioning.
0: Just as like a attaboy. a boy. You know what I'm saying?
1: Ah, <laughs> I appreciate you, brother. I do. <laughs> so here we go now. Um, where we at? Oh, when Hitler ran through France in 1940, the French Rothschilds fled, and uh, their new economic home was the United States and England. The three oldest that would be Edward, Robert, and Morris Rothschild all fled. To either england or america they set up shop there and they became absolutely set up until the war ended keep in mind that was the french rothschilds out of the paris branch hitler and his boys kind of did a lot of damage for europe as a whole but of course the rothschilds knew what was going to happen before it happened they funded it along the way so while it may have appeared on the surface that that broke up the last holdings of the jewish banking in europe Unfortunately, that's not even remotely true, and they were in control of it the entire time. It'd be like that. It'd be like that, dude. Allegedly, the wealth of the Rothschilds was confiscated by the Nazis. Allegedly. Allegedly. Hate to tell y'all, the gold was only being mined by one person, so when you see this Nazi gold, the gold came from the Rothschilds. It was Jewish gold, one way or another. Mm. After the war... And with the funding of the U.N., consolidating resources and power were made even easier for the Rothschilds. And now they were completely set up to run the United States and the U.K. straight on into the Cold War. NM Rothschild in London sets out to go into a new direction. And as a company, you know, they, they see that they need to start diversifying and staying ahead of the edge. They need to start getting into new forms of banking. Okay, New forms of thing, Bonds and stocks and free trade markets are wildly successful. We're getting into the 1980s here. But um, before that happened, the 1970s, a media mogul seeks uh, N.M. Rothschild & Sons assistance out of their London branch. His name was Robert Maxwell. Mm. And if you would, sir, go ahead and play that video that I had sent you.
0: Of course, my good sir. Robert Maxwell, that's a very familiar name. I wonder who who that
1: is. Well, the video is not going to say much about his uh, connection to a family member you may have heard of here soon, but this is going to be a good way to round out the video, I think. Go ahead. All right.
2: Maxwell served in the British Army during World War II. After the war, he worked for British intelligence and later entered the publishing industry. In the 1950s and 1960s, Maxwell acquired several British publishing companies, including Pergamon Press and Mirror Group Newspapers. He had a traumatic beginning to his life as a child, and most of his family were wiped out in the Holocaust. I think the experience of extreme poverty and great hardship scarred him for life. Not being poor became an absolute imperative. But to expand his business empire, He will need money, lots of money, the type only powerhouses like the Rothschilds can provide. In the 1980s, Maxwell's investments look like they're doing well, but trouble is brewing inside N.M. Rothschild. Lord Victor Rothschild and his son Jacob are on one side, fighting with their cousin, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild. Around this time, the banking world was changing a lot. Bigger banks were acquiring smaller ones, making them mega banks. And new ways of making money, like derivatives and options came up in the 1980s. These new tools help banks make more money and also help them manage risk better. Jacob Rothschild believes the bank must adapt to modern corporate strategies and pursue aggressive expansion. Sir Evelyn, who leads N.M. Rothschild and Sons, asserts that modernizing the ownership structure risks the family's absolute control. He insists the Rothschild's bank must always be wholly owned by the Rothschilds, even if it demands short-term sacrifices.
0: It says, uh, Lord Victor Rothschild steps in to mediate between Jacob and Evelyn, resulting in both Jacob and himself being forced out.
2: But family drama soon become their least concern. A massive scandal erupts, threatening the Rothschild's reputation. The millionaire newspaper publisher Robert Maxwell is dead. He disappeared overboard from his private yacht early this morning while cruising off the Canary Islands. In the early 1990s, revelations surface that Maxwell misappropriated hundreds of millions from his employees' pension funds to sustain his enterprises and luxurious life. I feel that, and I've grappled with this a lot, I feel that possibly the line between suicide and an accident is less clear-cut than we tend to assume. Maxwell's mysterious death in 1991, after vanishing from his yacht near the Canary Islands, spurs investigations into his financial misdeeds. While the Rothschild's involvement in Maxwell's demise remains unclear, the event blemishes their reputation. But for Sir Evelyn de Rothschild, the scandal reaffirms his beliefs about the bank's need for discretion and privacy. But N.M. Rothschild is still just the tip of the extensive Rothschild legacy. By 2023, the Rothschild family diversifies its interests across multiple sectors, extending beyond traditional banking. Their enterprises encompass investment banking, wealth and asset management, private equity, and philanthropy. The original banking establishments in Paris, Frankfurt, Vienna, London, and Naples, once the bedrock of the Rothschild banking dynasty, have adapted to the evolving financial landscape. While banking is still central, the family's influence now permeates a wider range of financial services. Throughout history, the Rothschild family was often not hesitant about making more money. But when it comes to maintaining family legacy, they were able to let go of those opportunities. This kind of long-term view is both respected and scary.
1: Ro. Shout out to Phineas. Uh youtube video it was an excellent source to help me uh make this script they're on their shit dude with that yeah man that was an excellent documentary
0: Mm. i mean it's uh it's not surprising dude i whenever they showed that fucking picture of uh jacob rothschild i'm like mr burns what are you doing bro (laughs) <laughs>
1: that was actually the inspiration for Mr. Burns. Oh, there's, was there's no denying it. He was to look like Jacob Rothschild.
0: Yeah, there's no denying that. That's yeah. identical cartoon,
1: bro. Now, with your boy, Mr. Robert Maxwell, he had a daughter who decided that she needed to get involved with certain nefarious figures, uh, specifically for the principle of being able to blackmail them if and when they ever decided to not cooperate with certain factions
0: was a she got
1: involved was a certain with a man
0: island involved
1: there was in fact there was in fact but they didn't start there they started in new york city and then they moved to florida and then they moved to an island this man named jeffrey epstein and her developed a network of blackmail For all of the world's wealthiest elites, including multiple members of the Rothschild family, whose names were in fact on the Lolita flight logs. So as we wrap all of this up, the Rothschilds from the humblest origins of the ghettos of Frankfurt in the 1700s grew to be the sole proprietors and financiers of every government and every armed conflict from the time after Napoleon to now. And while, yes, American industrial uh, figures made their way in, as well as other countries' industrializations, the Rothschilds were at the forefront of it, calling the shots and dictating the price of everything along the way. And, of course, making their commissions on the front and back end of every deal. That is why they have gotten to the level of wealth and power that they are at. They are no longer the, the ones that are, uh, you know, the government knows them, the government needs them. They are the top of the top as far as money goes.
0: Wow, dude, it just never ends, and it and it kind of seems like it's never going to. Like, why would it? If you're keeping it in the family for this long, you don't need to. You know, uh, you don't need to marry off your daughters to combine forces to you know to combine empires to keep the empire going. No, you keep it in the family. You keep cousin fucking. You never got nothing to really worry about outside of you know some strange DNA and. Possibly, this uh, is some strange. This children. is
1: generational wealth. Generational wealth, because no matter what country you go to, no matter what laws of the land may dictate whatever, the inheritance has to fall to the next of kin. And if the next of kin is a direct, lineageally connected person who's already building their section of the empire, it's it literally, mathematically has to succeed. But again, you do have that one in eight shot of having a kid that's got some shit with them. So you know, risks and shit.
0: Yeah. You know, I'd like to really look into those kids to see if any of them ever turned out that way or if there was uh, some abortions involved or something. You would have to imagine there probably was, dude.
1: I don't believe they would do abortions. I think they would have the kid and either kill it or have the kid and just kind of lock it up in an infirmary. Very similar to how the Kennedys did it. They had a daughter that had some sort of mental problems. They lobotomized her and locked her up in an insane asylum for the rest of her life. What? JFK's sister. Wow, I didn't know that. hmm They had a daughter that was born with some sort of mental impairment. They fucking frontal lobotomized her and kept her locked away at an asylum for the rest of her life.
0: Like, Absolutely. Cut off her boobs and shit?
1: No, no. A lobotomy is when they screw into your brain.
0: Oh, what am I thinking whenever they, like, chop off your body parts so that you can't reproduce?
1: The, a libation? No, um... Uh, I, I you're talking about like a, a, a breast reduction.
0: No, 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 no. Like whenever they like cut off the women's vaginas and their tits. What is that called?
1: Sex change. No,
0: you know what I'm saying. It's like a religious thing that certain people do like. Oh, not
1: uh, castration. Is it called castration for women?
0: Yeah. OK. Anyway,
1: yeah. Female castration or, or mutilation
0: mutilation, uh, that's mutilation. Where, genital mutilation yes no no that's no no,
1: no, no not genital mutilation no a frontal lobotomy that was back in the day whenever in the early 30s 40s and 50s and even into the 60s in some cases if you had like a gay cousin they would send the gay cousin to the insane asylum to get shock treatments and all these other things and even maybe a frontal lobotomy to try to cure their gayness Right? Because that was a mental disorder. Um, <laughs> so, that's so
0: ignorant to have that
1: mindset, that, dude.
0: That is what they truly
1: believed. Hell, they had guys that were sending their wives to insane asylums because they wanted too much sex. They were seen as oh. nymphomaniacs and like, oh my God, my wife wants too much sex. I can't even deal, bro. Take her away. Fucking lobotomizer. Give her a drill to the forehead. Poor, that'll, that'll cure this shit. Poor
0: guy. You know what I mean? These
1: poor fucking simpletons.
0: I mean, God forbid Ugh. your your wife actually enjoys certain things that you
1: like. <laughs> God forbid she's just a squirrel trying to catch her nut, too, dog. Hey, but whatever.
0: Hey, you know.
1: Anyway, so yes, the Rothschilds, whenever they did have kids that were born deformed or whatever, I feel like they'd be one of those family secrets that kind of gets pushed under the rug. And we don't talk about them at uh, Christmas get-togethers, you know what I mean?
0: Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, so dude. So anyway. That's uh pretty pretty wild shit and you, you really see it ex- especially going on in, in today, you know, even like in Ukraine, I'm sure, and in Israel, I'm sure, and, and like it's all happening and they're funding both sides because why Uh-oh. wouldn't you?
1: Oh, don't think that the Rothschilds do not have their outposts set up in Jerusalem, bro. They are Jews. Don't get a twisted where the money came from for the Jews to buy that land and set up shop. Mm-hmm. Or how about where the money came from to give them all of the military hardware to defend themselves in the Six Day War?
0: Wild shit, dude. I mean, look, mm. you uh, you presented some great shit today, and uh, I am, you know, I, I miss you, Jacob. I wish that I was there in studio with Same, you. Brother um it's always a much better vibe when we're together in the studio but hey dude you you got to keep it going Uh, the party doesn't stop even if it has to be over the internet and hopefully our cult members understand that that you know we're putting out five shows a week sometimes you got to take a little breather but you know what there ain't no breather happening over here i play while i work that's how this that's That's how this goes that's Um, right we
1: love what we do it's not work you know what I mean? Oh, we dude. absolutely love this.
0: Even on my honeymoon, I'm um, I'm uploading episodes. That's what's going Locking on, right, man? You know, that's just that's just in it to win it, right there, baby.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Um, but anyway, Jacob, what do you think? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people do believe that this is like um uh, they like to take
1: it to the Jew world order. Okay, I don't I don't like to go that route with it. Um, like, yeah, the Rothschilds are Jewish, but that doesn't, that's not like why they love gold they right. love gold. Cause that's good business. They like war because it's good business. I the agree. fact that they all happen to be Jewish while it is interesting. And while yes, the Jews, like I've said before, are known to be very good with money and very good with finance and all these things. Sure. I also do not meet, think that that inherently means that they're evil. They're Jews. Therefore, Jews are evil. Ha, ha, ha. Zionist and the Grand Cabal. Like, no, no. What? No, that's just me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what other kind of um, magic and literature that they're looking into. I mean, it's possible that you're more than one of those things. Like, you know, even if you're a Freemason, you can still be a Jew. You can still be a Christian. You can still be a Muslim. It doesn't matter. You're 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 studying two things at once. And that's probably what's going on with them. Some Jewish mysticism, possibly. I don't know.
1: Who's to say? Who's to say? Now, we absolutely know that these global elites, remember, when they first started making their banks, the Illuminati was running. Freemasons were running, the global superpowers clicked up with their little, you know, secret societies and occult practices were absolutely running. For them to get to this status of wealth, you understand that when you get there, you do what the rich do. So to say that the Rothschilds never got involved with any of these clicks is laughable. We already know that Epstein Island had all kinds of horrible satanic shit going on on it, not just the child rape, and we know that the Rothschilds had multiple members on the flight logs multiple times. And you could also see that many of them have been accused of not just sleeping around with a mistress. Multiple members have been accused of the worst things. Now, granted, I understand that it's easy to poke fun from the bottom looking up at the top. Fine, fine. But when there's that many accusations and that much hard evidence proving that these accusations aren't baseless, yeah, they're absolutely a part of the global elite, the grand cabal, the evil at the top, all of the things. The fact that they're Jewish has nothing to do with that. Yeah, I would. Hell, I El would. Chapo was a Catholic. That has nothing to do with it.
0: Oh, dude, Putin's a Catholic. You know what I mean? Like, or a, ver- a version of it. It doesn't matter. I don't know if your religion actually plays a role into that, but. Um, I don't think it does. Yeah, dude, as far as uh, all that Epstein Island shit, you know, whenever people, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, he went to jail and then ultimately killed himself, quotations. Um, Allegedly, my
1: ass. But that's
0: whenever, you know, all of the big corporate leaders all step down from their positions they knew that there was dirt to be had and it almost makes you wonder like okay who's in control of that dirt who has those logs who has those lists of all those people and all the deeds and all the underage uh, underage child sex trafficking and you know what blackmail was accumulated whenever they went there and why aren't they letting that out well i would imagine they're using that blackmail to their very own needs themselves so i think that that's why that those lists haven't been set out yet there are some lists out there that You know, supposed that that those may have been the actual list. But, you know, that's hearsay. And I don't know if we're ever really going to get those lists unless your boy DT get back in office, which, you
1: know, there's hope. We'll see. (laughs) We shall hope and pray. Right. But keep in mind also, it's not like DT's hands are clean. To get to where he's at, he had to deal with the financial elites. He had to deal with the banks. He had to deal with Morgan. He had to deal with Chase. He had to deal with the Rothschilds. He had to he had to brush some elbows, bro. He had to grease some palms. He had to pay his tribute, if you will. <laughs> this is not the greatest...
0: <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah, dude, this was fucking awesome. I'm so happy we finally got into the Rothschilds. We're eventually going to do a Rockefellers, too, because that's probably equally some shady shit going on there as well.
1: Oh, dude, as we... See, I just barely glanced over the American industrial age and all of what went into that what made junius morgan the god that he was the vanderbilt the carnegie the 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 rockefeller i absolutely would love to do an in-depth dive on each one of those individuals or just them as a whole the american industrial revolution as a whole
0: i'm down with that too well in in chase bank you said is is rothschild's right
1: chase is owned by morgan and right. Morgan is owned by Rothschilds.
0: Right, 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 right. So it's yeah, because it is J.P. Morgan Chase. It's a combination company. Correct. Um, wild shit, wild shit, dude. Well, you know what? We got plenty more coming. The next one's going to be coming live to you from Arizona as well. Fret not, though. I will be back in Louisiana in studio, having Christy come in and interrupt on our every show. We we look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that being said. This was another beautiful episode of the Cult of Conspiracy, and my name's Jonathan. I'm Jacob. And there's one very important, extremely vital piece of information we need you to learn just as soon as humanly possible. Open up that third eye.
1: Hey, cult members, Jacob here. Just wanted to ask, who wants better sex? The best way to get started is to go to adamandeve.com right now. Adam and Eve is offering 50% off just about any item, but that's not all. When you get one item, they will also send three bonus sexy items and six free movies. They offer discreet shipping as your privacy is a priority, plus free shipping on your entire order. Doesn't matter how much you spend or what you buy. All we packaged and sent discreetly for free. That's 50% off one item and 10 free gifts to boot. Bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy or anything you desire. Just enter the offer code CULT at checkout, and you'll get 50% off almost any item, plus 10 free gifts, 3 bonus items, 6 free movies, and free shipping. Use the offer code CULT, that's C-U-L-T, at adamandeve.com. Now, this is an exclusive offer specific to this podcast, so be sure to use this code to get you not just the discount and the free goodies, but also the 100% free shipping with the code CULT.